Lucifer Means Lightbringer presents The Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire The Bloodstone Compendium Chapter 3 Waves of Night and Moonblood Hey everybody, thanks for joining us today on the third episode of the Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire podcast. If you've enjoyed the first two podcasts, then congratulations. You're a fan of symbolism, like myself, or at least, you're well on the way to becoming so. Now as much as I enjoy the symbolic evidence, and I do enjoy it, in order to make any sense of it, you always have to corroborate potential conclusions with hard evidence and common sense, and I hope I'm doing a good job of this so far. The symbolism can get a little abstract, so it's important to keep it grounded in the story and the characters. And again, I hope I'm doing an adequate job of accomplishing this. I will have some podcasts and essays in the future which deal primarily with hard evidence and logistics, instead of so much decoding of symbolism and metaphor, in case you were wondering. But we've certainly been waist-deep in it so far. If you found some of the symbolic stuff a bit challenging or abstract, let me say thank you for wrestling with it. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. George's symbolism does get easier as it goes along, because he's using a consistent vocabulary of symbols, and once you learn those, you've pretty much got the hang of it. Consider the difference between a book and a movie. In a movie, you don't have to spend precious dialogue describing the background, the character's clothes and posture, the sky and the flowers, etc. All of that is done visually. When you're writing a book, on the other hand, there's a constant challenge to create vivid scenes in the mind of the reader without spending too many words describing the drapery and everyone's outfit and all the food. Well, I guess you have to pick your battles. If you spend a lot of words on the food, you have to economize elsewhere, or else you can bog down the story. It's a balance, of course. The proper amount of describing the drapes provides pacing to the story so it doesn't go too fast, and a few well-chosen details can give our imaginations a foundation to create a vivid mental picture of the setting. Doran Martell describes himself as the grass in which his brother, the Red Viper, can hide. In this way, describing the drapes is the grass in which important clues and ideas can be hidden, and skilled authors like George R.R. R. Martin are in fact experts at hiding snakes. And yes, he's known to hide them in descriptions of food. Symbolism adds a third dimension to this phenomenon, because a single word or phrase can carry with it many extra layers of importance. We've examined the ramifications of Lightbringer as a sword and a torch, or the idea of a bloody sword representing battle and impregnation both. A blue rose isn't just a blue rose in A Song of Ice and Fire. If someone hands Arya or Sansa a blue rose in the next book, we'll immediately think of Lyanna and the Bale the Bard story and begin looking for parallels. Indeed, symbols can be quite useful for drawing parallels between different scenes, locations, and characters. Much of my process involves identifying these key symbols and families of symbols, tracing their appearance across the novels and analyzing their context, and then trying to figure out what the hell George is saying to us with all of it. One conclusion which I have arrived at through doing this is that George is making use of the concept of archetypes, 
and that he has essentially created his own A Song of Ice and Fire archetypal characters who each have their own family of symbols. We've talked a lot about the Solar King and the Moon Maiden, the Azor High and Nissa Nissa archetypes, respectively, and that's a good example of what I'm referring to. It's helpful to realize that George is using archetypes and to figure out what they are because they act as a kind of master template for all the symbolism floating around in the books. It's what allows us to make sense of the fact that Stannis, Beric, Jon Snow, Bloodraven, Rhaegar, and Aegon the Conqueror share so much symbolism because we see that they are all referring back to the Azor Ahai archetypal template. So here's how I approach this. The symbols which are identifiable as Azor Ahai symbols, like the Flaming Sword, let us know that a person is playing into the Azor Ahai archetype. If a person has a Flaming Sword, we better take a look and see if there aren't more Azor Ahai symbols. All manifestations of Azor Ahai will have several symbols in common with most of the others. This is how we know who's in and who's out. Once we have identified several Azor Ahai impersonators throughout the story, we can gather them together and look at what they have in common and attempt to fill in the gaps of what we know about the original Azor Ahai and his sword. By tracing all these things which symbolize Lightbringer, we have gained a sense of what it's about, and we've been able to figure out that the story about it is at best misleading, and at worst, a complete lie. It's about darkness and death and shadow, about drinking blood and drinking light, not restoring light and love to the world as we are told. At least, that's what the symbolism would have us believe. As I said, we have to corroborate the conclusions that the symbolic evidence seems to point at with hard evidence and common sense. The astronomical interpretation of this myth dictates that the breaking of the moon by cometary impact should be the cause of the long night, not the cure. When a large enough comet or meteor impacts the Earth, the debris clouds the sky and blocks the sun, sometimes for years. When the fiery comet plunged into the heart of the second moon, all was briefly engulfed in flame, only to have the darkness fall soon after. All of that squares with the symbolic evidence pointing to Azor High as the villain, and Lightbringer being a sword that brought the darkness. Now common sense would dictate that a man who stabs his wife with a sword to work blood magic is, at best, stretching the idea of a Machiavellian antihero to the breaking point, and at worst, exhibiting telltale signs of depraved villainy and psychosis. The legend also says Azor Ahai broke the moon when he tempered Lightbringer in Nissanus's heart, and common sense would again dictate that this is not a heroic deed of valor, breaking the moon. Finally, common sense would also take a good hard look at people willing to burn children alive to wake dragons, or suck away people's life fires to birth unnatural shadow assassins, and assert that these folks probably aren't the ones we should trust to define what it means to be heroic. And that's pretty much how I deal with the symbolic evidence, and how I attempt to keep it rooted in the fundamentals of the story. I utilize multiple lines of evidence to ensure that we are interpreting the symbols and metaphors in a way that makes sense with the narrative themes of the story. At the end of the day, just like any theory about the books, it has to make narrative sense. I hope you've enjoyed our little meta-discussion here. So far I've just been charging ahead with heavy symbolic analysis without really explaining why I think this is a viable way to analyze the novels, and I wanted to take a moment to do so. I want you to have as much confidence as possible in my methodology, and failing that, at least you can understand my approach. If you're one who puts less stock in the symbolic evidence and comparisons of specific language, God bless you, you tough cookies you, then hopefully I am providing enough other kinds of corroborating evidence to convince you to give the ideas consideration. 
With that said, let's continue with our quest to find the truth of the Bloodstone Emperor Azor Ahai and Lightbringer. In the last installment, we listed all of the mythical associations of Bloodstone, also called Heliotrope, and began to explore each one, correlating each property or association of Bloodstone to an aspect of the Long Night Moon Catastrophe, remembered as the Forging of Lightbringer. The premise is simple. George gave us the story of a Dark Lord who supposedly caused the Long Night, and he named him the Bloodstone Emperor. So I looked up the associations of Bloodstone, and they seemed to match everything that I was already discovering about the Long Night and Azor High. I found that Bloodstone's proper name is Heliotrope, from the Greek words meaning sun and to turn. That's interesting by itself, because these two names given the stone immediately associate it with blood and the sun. In other words, blood and fire. We know that the two key elements of Lightbringer are blood and fire, blood sacrificed to light it on fire, to be exact, and we've seen that the comet is described as a bleeding star or a burning star, and also that the terrible red of the comet is the red of blood and flame and sunsets. Similarly, the moon meteors are coated in moon blood and then burnt by the sun as they drink the sun's fire. Blood and fire. As you can see, bloodstone, or heliotrope, makes a great analog to the concepts George seems to want to work with for Lightbringer and objects which symbolize Lightbringer, like meteors and dragons. Because comets are basically flying stones, the idea of the red comet as a bleeding star really matches well with the idea of a bloody stone. And in this way, we can see that the myth of the Bloodstone Emperor causing the Long Night is a nice parallel to the Red Comet, a bleeding stone, causing the Long Night. We've already covered several of the specific mythical associations of Bloodstone and Heliotrope. We took a look at the magical properties of Bloodstone as the Warrior's Stone and as a stone used in magical warfare between the ancient sorcerers of Egypt and Sumeria, which fits well with the idea of the Bloodstone Emperor worshipping the Black Stone and working dark magic. We saw that it's associated with aiding astral travel and communication with the celestial realms, ideas which seem to manifest as the Bloodstone Emperor's creepy, starry wisdom church that he started. We spent quite a bit of time discussing the idea of Bloodstone as a stone consecrated with the blood of a sacrificed god, in particular, the blood of the moon goddess, which coated the Bloodstone meteors. This idea is represented in the Azor High myth by the idea of Nissa Nissa's blood coating Lightbringer as it took fire. We saw that Bloodstone is associated with causing lightning and thunderstorms, a reference to the firestorm of swords and the thunderbolt of the storm god in the Grey King myth. Finally, we examined Bloodstone's associations with blood, poison, and snake venom, and by doing so, we learned that the poisonous snake is one aspect of Lightbringer and the Black Bloodstone Moon Meteors. This also strengthens the identification of the magically toxic oily black stone as some kind of bloodstone, moon meteor stone itself, or perhaps stone burned black in the fiery explosion of a moon meteor impact. I've saved a lot of the coolest bloodstone ideas for this episode, so let's get started. As usual, you can follow along with this podcast on my WordPress page, lucifermeanslightbringer.wordpress.com, where I've posted the matching text of what you'll be hearing today plus a few pictures and links. The Amethyst Koala, who has done the readings on the first two podcasts, is also an Amethyst college student, and she was a bit busy this week. So I hope you'll join me in welcoming to the program Lady Nightwind, who will be performing the readings from the text today. Our music is again provided by Animals as Leaders. My thanks to both of them, to George R.R. Martin for writing the books, and to you, the listener. 
Section 1. Pliny the Elder, Bloody Sun Mirrors, Eclipses, and Sun Drinking. The name heliotrope, from the Greek word helios, meaning sun, and trepane, to turn, derives from the ancient belief that bloodstone had the ability to bend and alter the sun's reflection. The source of this information is Pliny the Elder's Natural History. Heliotropium is found in Ethiopia, Africa, and Cyprus. It is of a leek green color streaked with blood-red veins. It has been thus named from the circumstance that, if placed in a vessel of water and exposed to the full light of the sun, it changes to a reflected color like that of blood, this being the case with the stone of Ethiopia more particularly. Out of the water, too, it reflects the figure of the sun like a mirror, and it discovers eclipses of that luminary by showing the moon passing over its disk. Based on this quote, which is probably the most well-known concerning bloodstone and heliotrope, this section will discuss three main concepts, bloody sun mirrors, darkening or drinking the sun, and eclipses. All of these ideas kind of work together, as they all have to do with turning the sun in some way. The bloodstone submerged in water turns the color of the sun's reflection to that of blood, meaning it darkens the sun's light. Out of water, it reflects the sun like a mirror. Now bloodstone is turning the sun's light by bending and refracting it, as a mirror does. Eclipses represent a darkening of the sun, and we see that bloodstone can not only darken the color of sunlight, but also discover eclipses. And that will be turning the sun by turning it dark. All three of these concepts also describe qualities and actions of the bloodstone moon meteors. That's the whole point of talking about them, of course. First, bloodstone is a sun mirror, a stone which reflects the light of the sun. That makes for a great correlation with the moon itself, which only shines with reflected sunlight. After the moon kisses the sun and explodes, its meteor children drank the fire of the sun, which also speaks of the sun shining onto the bloodstone. Next we have the association with eclipses. This idea is pretty simple. In order for the moon to be perceived as wandering too close to the sun, and in order for the comet to look connected to the sun and thus creating the image of a sun holding a comet sword, we need an eclipse alignment at the moment of impact. Thematically, too, the moon explosion blots out the sun, eclipsing it for the duration of the long night. We talked about the idea of the Bloodstone Emperor representing the darkened solar king and the Lion of Night. Just as Azor Ahai becomes the Bloodstone Emperor by destroying the moon, the actual sun becomes a darkened sun when the moon explodes and hides its face. This idea of a darkened sun spills out into various related ideas about shadow and drinking light, black fire or shadow fire, etc. Anything which darkens or drinks the light, anything which inverts the bright qualities of fire and light, these ought to put us in mind of the Bloodstone Emperor Azor Ahai, Lightbringer the Black Sword, and the Bloodstone Moon Meteors. The third idea, the submerged bloodstone darkening the sun's light to the color of blood, seems like a good fit with the notion of a bloodstone moon meteor which drinks the sun's fire and then lands in the ocean. The bloodstone is said to darken the sun's reflection to the color of blood, and since we are dealing with black blood instead of red blood when we speak of the moon's fire transformation, we get stones covered in black blood instead of red. Now to really fit this description, our black bloodstones need to be submersed in water. This would take the form of the island-drowning sea dragon, which the Grey King supposedly slew, I believe. If falling meteors can be perceived as dragons, then a meteor which falls into the sea and triggers tsunamis would make an excellent sea dragon. 
The island drowning aspect of the Sea Dragon story makes a lot of sense, since this legend comes to us from people who live on islands, which probably used to be connected to the mainland. A large moon meteor impact anywhere near the Iron Islands would probably produce horrible tsunamis which would wash over the entire area, likely killing thousands and reshaping the land. It's the kind of event which would absolutely be remembered in local myth, as the Sea Dragon Naga certainly is. This deadly flood tide is associated with blood on two counts. First, it was triggered by the drowning of the moon, the impact of bloody moon meteors in the ocean. Secondly, the ensuing flood itself can be perceived as a blood tide, specifically a tide of moon blood. We're going to be tackling quite a lot of symbolism, so keep in mind that there are three actual, physical, non-metaphorical things which we are really talking about here. The moon meteors, the floods they caused when they landed, and the darkness that they caused when they landed. We're kind of always talking about the original Azor High and Lightbringer, that's a given, but keep the meteors, floods, and darkness in mind as we go along. I believe there's an overarching Lightbringer motif of blood and darkness, and of red and black, and that this pertains to the floods and the darkness triggered by the moon meteors in particular. It appears in three slightly different forms. The black and bloody tides, the waves of night and blood, and streaks of red fire and rivers of black ice. In the process of showing the next several mythical associations of heliotrope and bloodstone, we will tackle these three symbolic motifs, and we will try to learn about the meteors, the floods, and the darkness, because that's what Lightbringer has to offer us. Section 2. The Dark Tide of the Moon We've seen that symbolically speaking, the moon bleeds and burns when it is stabbed by the Lightbringer Comet, and that the blackened moon blood then coats the black moon meteors. This makes them bloodstones in the sense that they are now consecrated with the blood of the dying moon goddess. Leanna's bed of blood symbolizes this perfectly. It's the place where the moon maiden dies, bloodying the stones, but also the place where Azor High Reborn and Lightbringer emerge from, Jon Snow in this case. So, too, for the bleeding and burning heart of Nissa Nissa, the scene of her death, and the birth of Lightbringer. Like the meteors, Lightbringer is covered in Nissa Nissa's blood as it is born. But the moon blood is not done, oh no. The symbol of the moon blood does not end with bleeding on the bloodstones, meteors, and swords. It also represents the floods triggered by the sea dragon impact, the drowning of the moon. The idea of a bloody tide caused by a bloodstone meteor fits well with the idea of bloodstone creating the image of blood in the water, which we saw in Pliny the Elder's quote just now. Stick a bloodstone in the water, and you get blood in the water. That's the idea. But of course it's not just blood in the water, but a dark, bloody tide. This is like a trumped-up version of the fact that the normal tides are produced by the moon's gravity. Moons in the sky produce normal tides, but drowning moons produce bloody tides. The image here is of blood in the water, a bloody stone in the water, etc. I actually think that Melisandre's vision of a dark tide in A Dance with Dragons contains important clues about this very thing. Visions danced before her, gold and scarlet, flickering, forming and melting and dissolving into one another, shapes strange and terrifying and seductive. She saw the eyeless faces again, staring out at her from sockets weeping blood. Then the towers by the sea, crumbling as the dark tide came sweeping over them, rising from the depths. And later in that chapter, when she's describing her vision to Jon Snow. 
I saw towers by the sea, submerged beneath a black and bloody tide. I mentioned last time that the tops of towers and mountains can be used to symbolize the celestial realm, and so a crumbling tower can certainly symbolize a falling heavenly body, as it did at the long-fallen Tower of Joy. The towers by the sea in Mel's vision are submerged by the bloody tide, which also recalls the bloody stones of the Tower of Joy scene. Both are crumbled towers, covered in blood. The Tower of Joy symbolized the moon death and the forging of Lightbringer, and I believe this vision does so as well. To corroborate this conclusion, check out the clear Lightbringer symbols with which the vision ends. Through curtains of fire, great winged shadows wheeled against a hard blue sky. A thousand red eyes floated in the rising flames. The red priestess shuddered. Blood trickled down her thigh, black and smoking. The fire was inside her, an agony, an ecstasy, filling her, searing her, transforming her. Shimmers of heat traced patterns on her skin, insistent as a lover's hand. These ideas all have terrestrial meanings. Mel is literally seeing dragons flying, a likely reference to Danny's dragons fighting the others. And the thousand red eyes refer to Blood Raven's thousand eyes in one. And there's even a mention of his wooden corpse white face to go along with it. But these ideas also have celestial meanings as well. The thousand red eyes surrounded by flame is our thousand dragon meteor shower. And the dragons as winged shadows is a reference to the black dragon meteors, which bring darkness. And this in turn relates to the concept of eclipsing the sun. The black blood and fire inside someone are flashing red lights, indicating fire transformation, which refers to both literal fire transformation, as Mel undergoes here and Barak does elsewhere, as well as the more symbolic fire transformation of the moon. The agony and ecstasy language is a specific call-out to Nissa Nissa's cry of anguish and ecstasy, and the fire which is like a lover implies the procreative side of the Lightbringer myth. We've covered these ideas before, and I point them out here just to firm up the conclusion that this vision is indeed talking about the forging of Lightbringer. Even better, Mel begins the vision by wishing for one more glimpse of Azor High, and ends it by musing, I pray for a glimpse of Azor High, and R'hllor shows me only snow. Having established this vision as a Lightbringer metaphor, let's go back to the beginning, where we see the skulls weeping blood and the black and bloody tide rising from the depths and sweeping over the crumbling towers by the sea. In addition to the idea that the tops of towers and mountains can be used to symbolize the celestial realm, I would suggest that the tops of people, heads and crowns, can serve the same purpose. Decapitation or throat slitting can therefore symbolize the fall of a moon or heavenly body. This also fits with the idea of the sun and moon sometimes being perceived as heads with faces, both in A Song of Ice and Fire and in the real world. The sun and moon are like very, very tall people with invisible bodies, in other words. The eyeless skulls in Mel's vision, therefore, would seem to symbolize dead and fallen heavenly bodies, which would be our fallen moon and the bloodstone meteors that came from the moon. Their sockets weep blood, suggesting that the black and bloody tide in this vision is coming from the eyes of the skulls. This would also seem to put the skulls in the position of moon meteors. When they land as sea dragons, the dark tide rises from the depths. That's our long night tsunami. It's a flood that is symbolically perceived as blood because it came from the death of the moon and is triggered by the bloodstone moon meteors. If those thousand red fiery eyes can be meteors, then the eyeless skulls also speak of a moon with its eyes torn out. The idea of the sockets weeping blood also speaks of the blood tide coming from the moon itself, since a single decapitated skull can represent the dead moon. 
and later in this chapter, they find the decapitated heads of three Night's Watch brothers stuck on spears of ashwood. Where their eyes had been, only empty sockets remained, black and bloody holes that stared down in silent accusation. A head mounted on a spear makes for a great comet symbol, and it's one Martin has used a few times. The shaft of ash wood creates the image of a trail of ash behind the head of the comet, while the head represents the actual meteorite, just as the eyeless skulls do. And just as the eyeless skulls of Mel's vision weep that black and bloody tide, here we see that the empty sockets of the severed heads are black and bloody holes. This is what I meant about Martin's use of symbolism being internally consistent. He often gives us different versions of the same symbol in close proximity so that we can piece everything together. The black and bloody sockets even stare down at John and the rest, like stars gazing down from the heavens. The black and bloody tide first falls from the heavens, and then it rises from the depths. This is that two-part association with the blood tide that I was referring to. First, bloody meteors fall from the sky, then they trigger a bloody tide from the ocean. Basically, Lightbringer is like the fat kid at the pool, doing a massive cannonball off the diving board except that the pool is filled with blood and everyone dies. Well, almost everyone. That's what you get for calling people fat. That's really mean, and you should have known better. Totally inappropriate. So the moon is a little round. Hey, it's just big boned, you know? Fat of the plant. Martin often seems to hide complementary symbols and concepts in his sigils and house words, particularly of obscure houses. For example, there's a house black tide on the Iron Islands. We know of two black tides, Baylor Black Tide, and Blind Baron Black Tide, one of Aaron Damfair's drowned men. Their sigil is an interlocking pattern of black on green, creating the image of black tides flooding green lands. This idea manifests again with Baylor Black Tide. Nightflyer was seized. Lord Black Tide delivered to the king in chains. Euron's mutes and mongrels had cut him into seven parts to feed the seven green land gods he worshipped. A black tide to feed the green lands, once again, and associated with sacrifice. Baylor being cut apart to make the black tides is very similar to the moon being cut up to make the black bloodstone meteors. These moon meteors were night flyers, all right, just like the name of Baylor's ship. Damfair himself prophesies about this dark tide in A Clash of Kings. Aaron Damfair raised his arms. And the waters of wrath will rise high! And the drowned god will spread his dominion across the Greenlands. As for Blind Baron, the drowned man, we've just been given the image of the moon's eyes being torn out and its sockets sweeping the black and bloody tides, as well as the moon being drowned to unleash the dark tide. And here we see a drowned, blinded man who is a black tide. We've seen eyes weeping tears of blood in a well-known scene, of course, and that was Leanna's statue weeping blood in one of Eddard's dreams. And that brings us right back to the Tower of Joy once again, yet another parallel between it and Mel's vision of the black and bloody tide. Both have the bloody stones and crumbling towers, as well as Jon Snow, who was almost certainly born at the Tower of Joy in Leanna's bed of blood, and who appears to Mel in her vision when she seeks Azora High. The fact that Leanna, the dying moon maiden, is associated with tears of blood, strengthens the idea that the eyeless skull's weeping blood represent the bloody moon meteors, the corpse of the dead moon goddess. The parallels between this vision and the Tower of Joy are a good indication that Mel's vision also refers to the moon's death and the forging of Lightbringer. And indeed, 
The idea of the bloodstone meteors triggering a black and bloody tide which rises from the depths is exactly what we are looking for, according to my premise that George is working with Pliny's notion about submerged bloodstones creating bloody water. As a follow-up to the idea of skulls as meteor symbols, I'd like to point out that Melisandre repeatedly sees the skulls surrounding Jon Snow, who is of course a dark solar king figure. He's Azor Ahai reborn, and his servants are the deadly meteors, his dragons woken from stone, and so they surround him. The flames crackled softly, and in their crackling she heard the whispered name, Jon Snow. But the skulls were here as well. The skulls were all around him. And then again, later in that same chapter. Skulls, a thousand skulls, and the bastard boy again, Jon Snow. Of course, the meteor shower is often depicted as a thousand of something, or some version of that. It was a thousand thousand dragons in the Carthine myth, and occasionally it's ten thousand of something. But a thousand is the most common. So what we are seeing here is the dark solar dragon surrounded by his thousand skull meteor children. The same motif is repeated in the very same vision with Bloodraven, who appears as a corpse face surrounded by a thousand fiery red eyes. I've mentioned that Bloodraven seems to be playing into the Bloodstone Emperor Azor Ahai archetype, and we'll continue to explore the ramifications of this in the future. But for now, I just want to point at the consistent groupings of symbols. Jon Snow, surrounded by his thousand fiery or bloody skulls, and Bloodraven, surrounded by his thousand red fiery eyes. Also notice the watery language of Bloodraven's eyes in Mel's vision. It says, A thousand red eyes floated in the rising flames. That's very similar to the blood tide of skulls rising from the depths that we saw in that same vision. Section 3. Crescent Moons, the Tauroctony, and the Remaking of the World. The dark tide can come from eyes and eyeless sockets, but it can also come from decapitation, as is implied by the bodiless skulls as symbols of the dead moon and its moon meteor children. Bran's vision of Sir Gregor as a stone giant with an empty helm in a Game of Thrones is quite instructive. Behind the visor there was only darkness and thick black blood. This foreshadows Gregor's literal beheading and the blackening of his blood through the Red Viper's poison spear, but it also gives us the black and bloody tide motif again, and associated with decapitation. As we'll see when we break down the mountain and viper trial by combat, Sir Gregor the Stone Giant is a tremendous moon symbol. That's right, not all moon symbols are feminine, and not all solar characters masculine either. Nymeria, who brought the sun sigil to Dorne and sat in the sun-shaped throne, is a good example, and of course we talked about the maiden made of light of Eastern legend being a representation of the bright face of the sun. Male or female, it makes no matter. Decapitating a moon character leads to darkness and black blood, another way of saying black and bloody tide. We've made a habit out of referring to Mithras near the beginning of each essay, and it seems we need to do so again. Many of the Azor High and Lightbringer ideas are drawn from Mithras, and the idea of a blood tide covering the earth is to be found in his story as well. Besides rock-born Mithras with his sword and torch, which we took a look at last time, the other very famous depiction of Mithras, the one in which he appears in over 60% of all Mithras statues, is called the Tauroctony, the slaying of the white bull. This is a highly astronomical scene, packed with symbolism, just the sort of thing we go for around here. As Mithras slays the bull, the sun and moon look down in favor, and the twelve constellations of the zodiac usually frame the scene. 
The bull, as well as the scorpion, dog, and snake in the scene, are thought to refer to constellations. The exact meaning of the scene and its various elements are the subject of much scholarly debate, of course, but it's well known that the observation of the stars was a central part of Roman Mithraism. They've even been called an astronomy cult. Here are the important parts of the Tauroctony, the ones which pertain to Lightbringer's forging and Azorahai's rebirth. First, Mithras looks away from the bull as he cuts its throat, because the bull is a friend to Mithras and actually represented a part of Mithras himself, just as Ghost the White Direwolf is a part of John. Yes, this is somewhat ominous. Mithras has to kill the bull to be reborn, and the bull's blood represents the life-giving force, bringing life to the earth. The blood is sometimes depicted as ears of wheat to indicate the bounty of the harvest. The blood of the sacrificed bull renews the world and allows Mithras to be reborn. There are other myths involving the slaying of a great monster, sometimes a dragon or serpent, that brings a global flood which transforms the world. But we know George is already drawing on Mithras lore, so I suspect this might have been the place where he got the notion of symbolizing the flood as a blood tide. Unfortunately, where Mithras is a solar king, Azor Ahai is an inverted solar king, and so the blood tide unleashed when he sacrificed the moon did the opposite of renewing the world and bringing life. It brought the long night, darkness, and death. The world book speaks of the great empire of the dawn legend and says that the world which survived the long night was, quote, a broken place where every tribe went its own way, fearful of all the others. There's a reference to this idea of remaking the world as Tyrion and Halden Halfmaester overhear the preaching of the red priests in Selhoris, who say that Benero has decreed Daenerys to be a Zorahai reborn and that she was born from smoke and salt to make the world anew. I suppose that remaking the world can cut both ways, but I'm pretty sure Azor Ahai's remaking will involve a fair amount of blood and fire. So now let me share a bit of indigenous North American folklore concerning a comet remaking the world. This information is from Graham Hancock's newest book, Magicians of the Gods, which I very highly recommend, and I'm borrowing here from an editorial he wrote for DailyMail.com about the book. It turns out that in the real world, scientists have recently discovered evidence that the 1,200-year mini-ice age known as the Younger Dryas, which lasted from 10,800 BCE to 9,600 BCE, might have been triggered by a comet impact over the North American ice sheet. A long night indeed. The comet seems to have broken apart and made multiple impacts along the northern ice sheets, destabilizing them. As a result, Large parts of the continent were simply erased with unfathomably violent flooding, and the ocean received vast amounts of ice-cold water, which disrupted the ocean currents. The atmosphere was also clouded with vaporized ice and tremendous amounts of debris. Stop me if you've heard this one before. The clouded sky and changed ocean currents kicked off a significant climate disruption, one which drove much of North America's megafauna to extinction. Essentially, George's long night triggered by a comet is a very compressed version of this chain of events triggered by the Younger Dryas Comet, as it's now being called. Now, it's nice to have science to tell us what happened 10,000 years ago, but the native peoples have seemingly kept alive stories of this event for that entire period of time. Again, stop me if this sounds familiar. I'm going to cite two in particular, but there are many, many similar stories spread all across North America. The Brule people of Lakota Nation in modern southern-day South Dakota have a legend of a, quote, fiery blast that shook the entire world, toppling mountain ranges and setting forests and prairies ablaze. Even the rocks glowed red-hot, and the giant animals and evil people burned up where they stood. 
The rivers overflowed their banks and surged across the landscape. Finally, the creator stamped the earth, and with a great quake, the earth split open, sending torrents across the entire world until only a few mountain peaks stood above the flood. The Ojibwa people of the Canadian grasslands refer to a comet called the Long-Tailed Heavenly Climbing Star, which swept low through the skies, scorching the earth and leaving behind, quote, a different world. After that, survival was hard work. The weather was colder than before. Ojibwa shaman Fred Pine says, quote, It came down here once, thousands of years ago, just like a sun. It had radiation and burning heat in its tail. It was just so hot that everything, even the stones, were cooked. The giant animals were killed off. You can find their bones today in the earth. It is said that the comet came down and spread his tail for miles and miles. This legend gives us a good idea of the kind of damage a comet or meteor impact can have. They can literally set the entire sky on fire at temperatures that melt stone. They leave behind a different world when they visit the Earth, just as Azor High Reborn will remake the world, and just as the Long Night left behind a broken world. These descriptions could just as easily apply to the Long Night. However, if George had given us myths this clear, it would have been too easy. And so, he's made it just a bit more obscure by doling out pieces of the disaster in separate legends. There's so much going on in the story that you don't really focus on the old folk tales, but when you line them up as we have done, and will continue to do, you can see a picture almost as clear as the quotes we just read. It might be something like this. The moon cracked open and the bleeding stars came down to earth like dragons and brought blood and flame everywhere they went, drowning islands and waking thunderous giants in the earth hammering and breaking the world and blotting out the very sun. The cold that came after was unstoppable and killed everything that the burning stars had spared. Also, notice in the previous quote that the comet was just like a sun, a second sun, you might say, or perhaps the sun's sun. The second suns are, of course, a sellsword company in service to Daenerys, and Quentin is described by Quave as the sun's son because he's a child of House Martell with their son Sigil. I have a feeling those are all references to the comet, the sun spear, being like a second sun in the sky, as the Ojibwa myth describes their comet experience. Just as the Dothraki say that one day the other moon will kiss the sun and crack as the first one did, the Ojibwa also prophesy a return. Quote, the star with the long, wide tail is going to destroy the world someday when it comes low again. So not only has this myth shaped the past of the Ojibwa and the other peoples of North America, it continues to shape their perception of the future. As you can see, George's use of mythical astronomy, which we've been chasing down in all of these podcasts, has plenty of precedent in the real world. I believe that George is essentially showing us a medieval society without the advantage of modern science to explain what happened 10,000 years ago. All we have is the folklore and scattered bits of hard evidence, just as we did in the real world until very recently. The moon destruction scenario is remembered all over the world, but George has cleverly hidden it in the folklore and legends, and then it's been sure to heap plenty of scorn on anything heard at a woman's tit. But it's all right there, as we've been discovering. The moon's sacrifice led to tides of blood and darkness. Let's return to the Tauroctony and Mithras's slaying of the white bull, whose blood remakes the world. It's easy to correlate the slain bull with the moon, because after Mithras kills the white bull, it actually becomes the moon. Simple enough. The moon and the bull are sacrificed, and a blood tide washes over the earth. The correlation between the Mithras story and the Long Night story is striking. 
The association between the moon and horned animals like cows, bulls, stags, boars, and goats is actually one of the most widespread notions in all of world mythology. When the moon is a crescent, it's called a horned moon because it resembles the horns of these sacrificial animals. In Egypt, lunar deities like Isis are depicted with cow horns to denote their lunar associations. The Egyptians also have a tradition of slaughtering the sacred bull, which they called Apis. His blood and sacrifice were also associated with harvest and fertility, and with the rebirth of the dead king, again, just as with Mithras and the white bull. Even more interesting is the idea that Apis was conceived by a ray of sunlight, while his mother was supposedly conceived by a flash of lightning from heaven, or by moonbeams. This is all right in the wheelhouse of the Lightbringer meteors, conceived by sun and moon, fallen to earth like a thunderbolt. It's just the kind of myth that George would find useful and be able to rope into his own evolving mythos. It's also no coincidence that at John's birth at the Tower of Joy, we find a white bull being slaughtered, Sir Gerald Hightower, the white bull. That's a pretty great shout-out to the Mithras legend. Calling Gerald a tower is even better, as it alludes to the heavenly realms. Better still, the light of the Hightower's beacon, and that's the actual Hightower in Old Town, is described in A Feast for Crows as a hazy orange moon. It seems like George has gone out of his way to equate the white bull with the moon, and the sacrifice of each with the birth of Azor High Reborn. There's another shout-out to this idea when Arya is getting her tour of the various temples in Bravos, which is where we found another Mithras reference last time, that of three-headed Trios. Beyond it, by the canal, that's the temple of Aquan the Red Bull. Every thirteenth day, his priests slit the throat of a pure white calf and offer bowls of blood to beggars. So, in the temple of the bull, we slit the throat of a white calf and people drink the blood as nourishment, or perhaps as a way to invoke divine favor. That's a very close analog to the Tauroctony. Lest we forget, Lightbringer the sword supposedly drank Nissanissa's blood, which is why we see blood-drinking ideas here and there. The curved horns of the bull evoke the crescent moon, but they also evoke the curved knives which were often used in ritual sacrifice. The moon was a crescent, thin and sharp as the blade of a knife. Four different times in Bran's final chapter of A Dance with Dragons, we get this description of the moon. That chapter is basically a montage, with the moon descriptions breaking up each mini-scene. That chapter concludes with this vision. Then, as he watched, a bearded man forced a captive down onto his knees before the heart tree. A white-haired woman stepped toward them through a drift of dark red leaves, a bronze sickle in her hand. No, said Bran, no, don't. But they could not hear him, no more than his father had. The woman grabbed the captive by the hair, hooked the sickle round his throat, and slashed. And through the mist of centuries, the broken boy could only watch as the man's feet drummed against the earth. But as his life flowed out of him in a red tide, Brandon Stark could taste the blood. So there's the blood tide unleashed by sacrifice, echoing the bloody tide unleashed by the sacrifice of the moon. The sacrifice in Bran's vision takes the form of a throat slitting, and with the sickle-shaped blade, a thin and curved blade, just like the crescent moon. We've also got the blood drinking again, as with Aquan the Red Bull. We find another slaughtered bull in a dance with dragons in the form of Little Walter Frey, the big one. He's the one whose mysterious murder sets off the Freys and Manderleys in Roose Bolton's Winterfell. He was butchered like a hog, says Sir Hostine Frey. The thing is, in an earlier chapter in the same book, during Ramsay and Jane's travesty of a wedding, 
The mist plays tricks with Theon's eyes, and he perceives everyone very strangely, and little Walder appears in the form of a red bull. No matter what color the bull, it seems the fate is the same. Cold butchery. There's a matching story in the world of ice and fire about one of the children of Garth the Green, Bors the Breaker, who founded House Bulwer. Supposedly, Bors drank so much bull's blood that he grew a pair of shiny black horns, and this bull's blood supposedly gave him the strength of 20 men. Again, we see the same ideas. Horns, sacrificing bulls, drinking their blood, and a kind of transformation. The shiny black horns, of course, put us in mind of the black dragonbinder horn that demands blood sacrifice to operate, which is entirely in keeping with the theme here. The tale of Bors the Breaker and House Bulwer creates a nice tie-in to Mel's black and bloody tide and the decapitated heads on spears, with their black and bloody holes for sockets. Because one of those heads belongs to Blackjack Bulwer, descendant of Bors. That serves as a direct equation between the idea of a severed bull's head and a moon meteor, since the heads on spears represent the decapitated moon. Blackjack's eyeless head shows us a decapitated moon bull becoming a black and bloody moon meteor, in other words. Now, I don't know about you, but these clever little links between scenes with the same symbolism amuse me to no end. It's basically like a treasure hunt, to find all the links between the occurrences of the various motifs. So now, consider Jon Snow and the Azor High archetype in general as a parallel to Mithras, which we've mentioned a few times. Mithras is a solar figure, just as Azor High is, excepting that Azor High is an inverted, dark solar figure. Jon has a white animal familiar, Ghost, who is a part of him, just as the white bull is a part of Mithras. The white bull is sacrificed in order to resurrect Mithras, so... Awkward silence. It may be that Jon's resurrection will come at a heavy price. As a silver lining, however, I'll mention that Jon's spirit is expected to be stored inside of Ghost for a time before his body is resurrected, and when a warg's spirit does this, it begins to merge with the animal. In other words, I think that it's likely that if this scenario comes about, what we will see is the wolf body being sacrificed, and the merged ghost John spirit will be transferred back to John's resurrected body. So it's not quite as sad if that turns out to be the case. Unfortunately, there's a bit of foreshadowing of this when Arya is down in the underbelly of the Red Keep in A Game of Thrones, in the chamber of the dragon skulls. She recalls a time when Rob led the other kids down into the Winterfell crypts, Old Nan had told her there were spiders down here, and rats big as dogs. Rob smiled when she said that. There are worse things than spiders and rats, he whispered. This is where the dead walk. That was when they heard the sound, low and deep and shivery. Baby Bran had clutched at Arya's hand. When the spirit stepped out of the open tomb, pale white and moaning for blood, Sansa ran shrieking for the stairs, and Bran wrapped himself around Rob's leg, sobbing. Arya stood her ground and gave the spirit a punch. It was only John, covered with flour. You stupid, she told him. You scared the baby. So that's ghostly John, the walking dead, a pale white spirit who makes a shivery sound. It's ghost John. Going back to the scene of the three eyeless heads on spears, one of which is Blackjack Bulwer, we see more foreshadowing. His huge white direwolf prowled around the shafts, sniffing, then lifted his leg and pissed on the spear that held the head of Black Jack Bulwer. Oh no, ghost! Not the one with the decapitated bull's head! Son of a... Say it ain't so, ghost! 
There's actually a lot of foreshadowing around John's resurrection in general, so a dedicated study of all these scenes is called for and might yield more clues about how it's going to go down. For now, I'll refer you to Radio Westeros Episode 6, called Jon Snow, Only the Cold, or the matching essay on their page, which deals with the mechanics of Jon's potential resurrection and the foreshadowing which indicates it. That's one of my favorite episodes there, so be sure to check that out. While we were talking about Mithras slaying the white bull to be reborn, I had to mention the parallel with Jon Snow and Ghost. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but like I said, merged Ghost Jon is probably going to kick some serious ass, so there is that. Now, where were we? Bloodstone, bloody stones in the water, bloody tides from sacrificed moons. Okay, got it. Here's one more fun little tidbit regarding bloody moons and sacrifice. On the Iron Islands, we find House Winch, whose sigil is a bloody crescent moon on a field of purple. A winch is a thing which pulls heavy objects out of place. Now, we're going to need a very big winch for the moon, of course, but that's another essay. And that sigil. It's a crescent moon, which is literally in a bed of blood. Said another way, a moon crescent could be seen as a blade made of moon. Flaming sword moon meteors, in other words. The moonstones which were covered in blood, just like the crescent moon of House Winch. House Winch really does not do anything important in any of the novels, nor even in Ironborn history. Literally, the only noteworthy thing that George has written about them is their sigil. And I suspect that's because their sigil is the important thing about them. A bloody crescent moon is easy enough to understand, given what we've just looked at concerning sickles and crescent moons and blood sacrifice, and attached to the word winch, it speaks of pulling down the moon. The purple background may be meant to remind us of the Amethyst Empress and Daenerys, the purple-eyed moon maidens. The real-world phenomena of a blood moon is the result of the moon passing through the Earth's shadow, a kind of reverse eclipse where the Earth is eclipsing the moon. I'm not sure if this is part of George's thinking, but it's interesting, and so I thought I would mention it, because it ties together bloody moons and eclipsed moons. So, we're almost ready to start making very bad menstruation jokes. We are talking about moon blood, after all, but not quite yet. That will come later when we talk about the idea of a maiden flowering. To be honest, I might not need to make any bad jokes. Martin is already having a field day with this, but I probably will anyway. As it is, we can see why he chose to refer to a woman's monthly visitor as moon blood, as it makes for a useful metaphor to give us hints about the moon's sacrifice during the long night. In all seriousness, my purpose here is to introduce the concept of the black and bloody tide as being part of the long night shitstorm of magical and metaphorical disasters, and to show how it's directly related to moon sacrifice. We've seen it coming from eyes and sockets, as well as from decapitations and throat slitting. We've seen it come from the sky and from the depths. Bloody swords and bloody moons and bloody stones. Bloody blood everywhere. It's like some kind of lunar abattoir. Who else feels the need to wash their hands? See, what we're really doing here is learning the secrets of the bloody bed. This is what Miriam Asdur had to go through. Tons of bloody symbolism. I know I said I'd hold off on the moon blood jokes, but I'm serious. The bloody bed and the bed of blood are the same thing. Lyanna's bed of blood is associated with her death, but it's where John is born. Miriam Asdur says that she learned the secrets of the bloody bed as a way of referring to midwifery, while the Damfair thinks to himself that the world is a cold place where women brought forth short-lived children from beds of blood and pain. It's a core element of the Lightbringer monomyth, death and life. It's George's own take on the idea of the sacrificial bull whose blood renews the world. 
The bull dies, but he was part of Mithras, and Mithras is reborn. Remember that John's blue rose in the chink in the wall fills the air with sweetness. So perhaps there is a renewal on the way, even though the first blood tide seems to have brought only death and destruction. Section 4. Rivers of Ice and Darkness While we're discussing young Jon Snow, the Lord of Castle Black, I think that he's got his own version of the Black and Bloody Tide. We discussed it last time, the Red Fire and Black Ice Jon thing, which is made up of two parallel scenes, his dream of being armored in black ice and wielding a burning red sword, and this optical illusion which appears in the cracks in the wall at sunset. Jon Snow turned away. The last light of the sun had begun to fade. He watched the cracks along the wall go from red to gray to black, from streaks of fire to rivers of black ice. Down below, Lady Melisandre would be lighting her night fire and chanting, Lord of light, defend us, for the night is dark and full of terrors. Winter is coming, John said at last, breaking the awkward silence. And with it, the White Walkers. The wall is where we stop them. The wall was made to stop them. But the wall must be manned. I interpreted the astronomy of this scene as follows. Streaks of red fire turning to black ice as the sunlight disappears and people talk of white walkers and defending the wall is a representation of red fiery meteors streaking down to land and causing massive floods during the long night. As you can see, that sequence fits very much with the black and bloody tide ideas, and I think it supports the idea that the rivers of black ice and the black and bloody tide motifs do in fact refer to real floods. The rivers of black ice really sound like a flood. It might be portrayed as icy because one of the meteors impacted a glacier in the north, like with the younger Dryas comet here on Earth. Or perhaps it's a cold flood simply because it came during the long night, which was a prolonged winter. Right after John has his dream of being armored in black ice and defending the wall with the burning red sword in A Dance with Dragons, we find this quote associating rotten ice, which is similar to black ice, with drowning. If the wildlings uphold the terms of the bargain, all will go as you've commanded. And if not, it may turn to blood and carnage. Remember, Tormund's people are hungry, cold, and fearful. Some of them hate us as much as some of you hate them. We are dancing on rotten ice here, them and us. One crack and we all drown. If blood should be shed today, it had best not be one of us who strikes the first blow, or I swear by the old gods and the new that I will have the head of the man who strikes it. So that's rotten ice, which leads to drowning, sandwiched by two mentions of bloodshed with the side of decapitation. Sounds delicious. Consider the idea of tears in regards to the appearance of red streaks of fire turning to rivers of black ice in the cracks in the wall. When the wall melts, as it does in this scene, it is said to weep. In other words, it is the tears of the wall which are the red streaks of fire and rivers of black ice. Now compare that to the idea of the moon crying tears of blood, which are manifested as the bloodstone meteors and the blood tide. Either way, the tears become lightbringer meteors. Even better, Ygritte tells John that the wall is actually made of blood, so we can also think of the wall's tears as tears of blood in a sense. John reinforces this by saying that one crack in the rotten ice means that it may turn to blood. I could actually do a whole section on tears. Alyssa's tears, frozen tears, the tears of lice, Lysa's tears, and cat's tears. 
but I want to focus on the red fire and black ice right now. Those are the moon's tears, and they fall from heaven like streaks of red fire or like bleeding stars, and trigger rivers of black ice, the dark tide rising from the depths. And all this goes down as the last light of the sun fades. In other words, as the sun turns dark and the long night falls. So, Jon Snow, a manifestation of the dark solar king archetype, has his own black and bloody tide symbolism, from the black blood that the Black Brothers are said to have, to the streaks of red fire and rivers of black ice that we just examined. There's a match to be found in another solar king, Cal Drogo. Drogo is Danny's sun and stars, of course, and like all Dothraki, he has those black eyes of night. This is from the night of their wedding, as they prepare to consummate the union, and therefore this scene represents the forging of Lightbringer, when the sun and moon had sexy time together. Drogo did not reply. His long, heavy braid was coiled in the dirt beside him. He pulled it over his right shoulder and began to remove the bells from his hair, one by one. After a moment, Danny leaned forward to help. When they were done, Drogo gestured. She understood. Slowly, carefully, she began to undo his braid. It took a long time. All the while, he sat there silently, watching her. When she was done, he shook his head, and his hair spread out behind him like a river of darkness, oiled and gleaming. She had never seen hair so long, so black, so thick. The Solar King unleashes a river of darkness when he copulates with the moon. That river of darkness begins coiled like a black snake, and then spreads out like black oil. The disappearance of the bells probably denotes the disappearance of the stars. I've been saving this quote for a while, to be honest. It's a real prize because it shows that George has had the oily black stone in mind from the very beginning, and not just in the form of the mysterious sea stone chair. The oily black river of darkness comes from the sun because the oily black stones came from the sun's impregnation of the moon, which caused the long night. It's a nice parallel to John's rivers of black ice that come from streaks of red fire as the last light of sun fades. Two paragraphs before this, Danny notes that Drogo towered over her as he towered over everyone, placing Drogo and his river of darkness in the celestial realm where it should be, just as we saw with Gerald Hightower. The imagery of this scene is paralleled in another scene depicting Lightbringer's forging, where Danny eats the stallion's heart to give strength to the unborn baby Rago. Her stomach roiled and heaved, yet she kept on, her face smeared with the heart's blood that sometimes seemed to explode against her lips. Carl Drogo stood over her as she ate, his face as hard as a bronze shield. His long black braid was shiny with oil. Bronze shields have been compared to suns on several occasions, with the Karstark sigil, with Oberyn's shield, and with the molten eyes of the dragon Rhaegal, so it makes sense to use that symbol for Drogo's solar face. Before, Drogo towered over Danny. Here, he stands over her. And again, his braid is associated with black oil. All this while heart blood explodes and covers the moon maiden's face. Danny will eventually wash this blood off by dipping herself into the blackest night waters of the womb of the world. Blood and black water once again as moons drown. The idea of Danny as a heart eater makes sense when we think about the fact that meteorites are referred to as the heart of a fallen star. A bloody heart would be a bleeding star, such as the Red Comet. So when we see the Moon Maiden eating a bloody heart, we can think of the Moon being force-fed the Lightbringer Comet. It's a celestial cataclysm version of that scene in the movie 7, with the spaghetti and 
Okay, never mind. That was disgusting. Anyway, the notion of moon maidens as heart eaters draws further parallels with Joffrey's sword named Heart Eater, which was replaced by Widow's Wail. The name Widow's Wail seems to refer to Nissa Nissa's cry of anguish and ecstasy, while Lightbringer was a heart eater, consuming Nissa Nissa's heart blood. Eating the stallion's heart also makes Danny feel nauseous, just as the moon was sickened by the poisonous Lightbringer comet. Her stomach even roils and heaves, just like a turbulent ocean. And since her stomach is filled with blood, we are, of course, talking about an ocean of blood. A couple of paragraphs before the quote we just cited, we read, Despite the tender mother's stomach that had afflicted her these past two moons, Danny had dined on bowls of half-clotted blood to accustom herself to the taste. And Erie made her chew strips of dried horse flesh until her jaws were aching. Two moons, you don't say. One of those moons was a mother who ate hearts and grew sick, so I've heard. To wrap up Solar King Cal Drogo's symbolism, we see that not only does he unleash an oily black river of darkness, but he also finds himself with black blood at his time of death, as I mentioned last time. Again we see the notorious black water and black blood motifs paired together, as well as the oil mixed in to create an association with the oily or greasy black stone. When Drogo burns in the pyre, he even lets loose greasy smoke, building on the connection between solar death and the greasy or oily black stone. Section 5. Drinking the Light, Sunstone I believe that the black and bloody tide motif has a twin sister, and that's the sweet child known as Waves of Night and Blood. Those are the ones we saw in the steel of Oathkeeper and Widow's Whale, the two swords made from Ned's ice, Lightbringer symbol extraordinaire. The description of the steel, which seems to have two distinct layers, is as waves of night and blood upon some steely shore. Like the black and bloody tides motif, this creates the image of a dark, bloody flood that came in the long night. The fact that Oathkeeper and Widow's Whale are Lightbringer symbols suggests that the waves of blood and night were triggered by a moon meteor and by the Red Comet. That's the same message we came away with from Melisandre's vision, black and bloody tides triggered by bloody meteors. That's also the same idea we came away with from the streaks of red fire turning to rivers of black ice, red meteors triggering black tides during the long night, which are associated with Lightbringer. That's why I introduced these three as parallel symbols, because they all tell the same story, which is Lightbringer's story. The parallels go a bit further than that, though, when we consider the concept of black ice. Black ice seems to, broadly speaking, refer to three general concepts. Floods, when the black ice is in river form. Comets, which are dirty balls of ice and rocky iron ore. And black swords, such as Ned's Valyrian steel sword Ice, which is nearly black, and which I've taken the liberty of nicknaming Black Ice. I've interpreted this to imply that Lightbringer was a kind of prototype for Valyrian steel, a black sword made from a black meteor, which burned with red fire or black and red fire. These meteors also caused floods, which is why John's red fire black ice motif causes dark, icy rivers, which drown. Even his black armor implies drowning, because in A Storm of Swords, Danny dreams of melting warriors armored in ice with her dragons, which turns the Trident River into a torrent. It's just the same with Oathkeeper and Widow's Whale, whose waves of night and blood imply the dark tide. But they also have the black ice element, like John's symbols, because they are made from Ned's black ice sword. 
Black ice is a sword which creates waves of night and blood. I believe that's the message of Ned's sword and its children. Basically, these are the same symbols as John's red fire and black ice in a slightly different configuration. John's red fire once takes the form of a burning red sword, and the other time it streaks down and turns into the black ice, which directly implies that fiery sword meteors turned into black ice, meaning black steel. It also implies that fiery sword meteors turned into black ice, as in rivers of cold black water. If Oathkeeper and Widow's Whale are black swords that look like dark floods, then what we have here in the cracks in the wall is icy water which looks like fiery red swords turning into black icy floods. That's what I mean by the same set of symbols, swords, black ice, and dark floods, being arranged in slightly different configurations. As we can see, George is using the black ice motif to draw a connection between Oathkeeper and Widow's Whale's waves of night and blood and John's red fire and black ice. There can be no doubt that this waves of night and blood language is important, because it's given to us three times. First, Tyrion sees Widow's Whale, and he says, Waves of night and blood. And then later in the same scene, he picks up Oathkeeper, which he thinks of as a close cousin to the first, and muses that the two swords shared the same fine, clean lines and the same distinctive color, the ripples of blood and night. Later, when Jaime gives the sword to Brienne, the wording is, Blood and black, the ripples shone. I believe this precise choice of language exists because it is supposed to correlate with the black and bloody tide motif, which means that they both refer to the flood triggered by the meteor impacts. The match between blood and black the ripples shown and black and bloody tides is pretty freaking close, you have to admit. What's really cool about Oathkeeper and Widow's Whale is that they combine several different bloodstone concepts in one package. The first is the blood consecration idea, Ned's ice was covered in Ned's blood. We are even specifically shown during the Siege of King's Landing that Sir Ilian does not clean the blood off the blade after using it, so it seems we are supposed to think of ice as being soiled with sacrificial blood, like the Bloodstone Meteors and Lightbringer itself. We also saw that Arya perceives the Red Comet, the Bleeding Star, as ice, covered in Ned's blood, so again, I think George is drawing our attention to ice as a bloody sword, and this association passes along to Oathkeeper and Widow's Whale, whose red is the color of blood. The second and third ways that the swords are acting like bloodstone are from the Pliny the Elder quote, darkening the sun's reflection to the color of blood while submerged, and being a sun mirror. Add to this the general concept of turning the sun or turning in the sun, which is the literal meaning of heliotrope. Recall that the maiden made of light, which is the sun, turned her back and hid her face from the world during the long night. In the scene where Solar King Jon Snow sees the red fire and black ice in the cracks in the wall, there's a line that says, Jon Snow turned away. The last light of the sun had begun to fade. It's like Jon himself is the sun here, and when he turns away, the last light of the sun fades. Pretty cool. Now, I've quoted this scene where Tyrion first sees Oathkeeper a couple of times, and this probably won't be the last time either. As you listen... Watch out for the watery language, and for people turning the blade. In fact, this scene is basically a couple of lions turning the sword in the sunlight over and over again. Their solar, leonine gaze is matched by the sunlight streaming in through the windows. If you like, you can imagine Tywin and Tyrion wearing big, fuzzy, yellow football mascot lion heads as we read the scene. It's kind of more fun that way.
The light streaming through the diamond-shaped panes of glass made the blade shimmer black and red as Lord Tywin turned it to inspect the edge, while the pommel and crossguard flamed gold. With this fool's jabber of Stannis and his magic sword, it seemed to me that we had best give Joffrey something extraordinary as well. A king should bear a kingly weapon. So, that's sunlight shimmering on the blade as solar figure Tywin turns the sword. We see a suggestion of a flaming sword with the flaming crossguard, and there's also a direct reference to Stannis' magic sword, Lightbringer. That's much too much sword for Joff, Tyrion said. He will grow into it. Here, feel the weight of it. The sword was much lighter than he had expected. As he turned it in his hand, he saw why. Only one metal could be beaten so thin and still have strength enough to fight with, and there was no mistaking those ripples, the mark of steel that has been folded back on itself many thousands of times. Valyrian steel? Yes, Lord Tywin said in a tone of deep satisfaction. That's one more sword turning. Tyrion wondered where the metal for this one had come from. A few master armorers could rework old Valyrian steel, but the secrets of its making had been lost when the doom came to old Valyria. I've mentioned that the doom may be serving as a kind of parallel to the Long Night disaster. The doom was when the skies rained down dragon glass and the black blood of demons. And of course that makes a lot more sense when you think about a rain of black bloodstones instead of black blood. The rain of Dragonglass complements this idea by creating the image of falling black blades, which are associated with both dragons and fire. The Doom was also accompanied by walls of water 300 feet high, which probably drowned whole islands, to use a phrase we know. Since I am suggesting the waves of night and blood crashing upon some steely shore in these swords is referring to the floods triggered by moon meteors, I like the fact that the Doom a story about floods and a reign of black blood and dragonglass, is mentioned right in the middle of the scene. This is, of course, another manifestation of the Storm of Swords motif, and again, there's a parallel to be found on the Iron Islands, where they sing old reaving songs like The Bloody Cup and Steel Rain. You know, all the classics. Time after time, we see these concepts paired together. The reign of swords or steel and the waves of blood, and the idea of a bloody cup gives us the blood-drinking connotation that we saw earlier with Aquin the Red Bull and Boris the Breaker, a connotation which, of course, originates with Lightbringer drinking Nissanissa's blood. Like I said, meteors, floods, and darkness. The colors are strange, he commented as he turned the blade in the sunlight. Most Valyrian steel was a gray so dark it looked almost black, as was true here as well. But blended into the folds was a red as deep as the gray. The two colors lapped over one another without ever touching, each ripple distinct, like waves of night and blood upon some steely shore. How did you get this patterning? I've never seen anything like it. There's our payoff quote, and once again, it's the same structure. Swords that bring blood and night. All of the watery imagery in this scene works to create the image of a submerged bloodstone. Just a minute ago, we saw the metaphorical tides of blood which symbolize sword-like meteors, and now we see the reverse, a sword that looks like waves of blood, and both symbols associated with Lightbringer. We also see another blade turning, that's three now, and this time it's turned in the sunlight specifically. And now the other payoff quote, which will introduce our next important concept. Nor I, my lord, said the armorer. 
I confess, these colors were not what I intended, and I do not know that I could duplicate them. Your Lord Father had asked for the crimson of your house, and it was that color I set out to infuse into the metal. But Valyrian steel is stubborn. These old swords remember, it is said, and they do not change easily. I worked half a hundred spells and brightened the red time and time again, but always the color would darken, as if the blade was drinking the sun from it. And some folds would not take the red at all, as you can see. So, it was colored a bright red, but that stubborn old sword absolutely insists on darkening the color to that of blood, just like a submerged bloodstone is supposed to do. That's a pretty specific reference to heliotrope, and it's the kind of thing that should clear up any doubt about whether or not George is indeed mining the associations of bloodstone and heliotrope as a part of his Lightbringer mythos. Drinking the sun's light is very important, because the moon meteors drank the sun's fire. I've mentioned this before. You're not impressed. Well, that was before we were thinking about bloodstone as something which darkens the sun's light. We are about to get into plants which are said to act heliotropically because their flowers and leaves very noticeably turn to face the sun throughout the day, the better to drink up its light. Another related concept is the idea of bloodstone as a sunstone, a stone which soaks up the sun and is therefore imbued with solar energy. These are all types of light drinking. The list of things which drink the light in A Song of Ice and Fire seems carefully chosen when you take a look at them, and I believe that they all refer to moon meteors or things burnt by moon meteors. The moon drinks the sun's light and fire, and as a result, its moon meteor children are themselves sun drinkers. So either Lightbringer itself or things stabbed by Lightbringer should be expected to drink the light. Oathkeeper and Widow's Whale Okay, we got that. Lightbringer symbols. The oily black stone of a shy. It might be moon meteor stone, or it could be stone burnt black by the moon meteor impacts. Perhaps there's a nasty black moon meteor at the heart of the Shadowlands, whose poison is leaching into the very land and turning the stone black and greasy. Any of these ideas would fit the pattern. The stone of the pit beneath the Pyramid of Marine, which Viserion and Rhaegal are chained up in, in a dance with dragons. Walls and floor and ceiling drank the light. Scorched, he realized. Bricks burned black, crumbling into ash. Stone burnt by dragon fire fits in with the bloodstone meteors which drank the sun's fire. The house of the undying from a clash of kings. Long and low, without towers or windows, it coiled like a stone serpent through a grove of black bark trees whose inky blue leaves made the stuff of the sorceress drink the Carthine called Shade of the Evening. No other building stood near. Black tiles covered the palace roof, many fallen or broken. The mortar between the stones was dry and crumbling. She understood now why Zerozoandaxos called it the Palace of Dust. Even Drogon seemed disquieted by the sight of it. The black dragon hissed, smoke seeping out between his sharp teeth. Blood of my blood, Jogo said in Dothraki. This is an evil place, a haunt of ghosts and magi. See how it drinks the morning sun? Let us go before it drinks us as well. A stone serpent is a great comet symbol, and this stone serpent is heavily associated with shadow. To find it drinking the sun, the morning sun, no less, is not a surprise. As a bonus, I'll mention that the Night's Watch brother called Stone Snake comes from the Shadow Tower, and the House of the Undying is literally a shadow tower, a tower which doesn't actually exist. Danny seems to climb up and up, only to run straight out after Drogon lights the place on fire. 
It's a shadow tower that's a stone snake. A pretty cool parallel. Renly's armor right before he's assassinated. This scene is too heavy to even get into in any kind of depth. I'm saving it for another day. But the long and short of it is that Renly's armor drinks the light right before he has his throat slashed by Azor High's quote, shadow sword, the shadow of a sword which was not there, which is, of course, Stannis's fake Lightbringer. As a victim of Lightbringer, he is the right man to drink the light. Sorry, Renly, you don't get a choice. After Renly's throat is cut, the blood washes over his armor like a dark tide and an evil flow, and then drowns out the green and gold, which are the colors of summer and life, of plants and sunshine. Renly's last word is cold. As this dark deed goes down, all the lamps in the tent go out. The tent was a magical castle alive with light right before, so the transformation is quite notable. Light drinking, light bringer the shadow sword, throat cutting, the dark blood tide, and then darkness and cold. Interestingly, there's a link between the light-drinking stone of the dragon's pit under the pyramid and Renly's armor. Renly's light-drinking green armor is described as, quote, a deep green, the green of leaves in a summer wood, while Rhaegal, the green and gold dragon, has, quote, scales of dark green, the green of moss in the deep woods at dusk, just before the last light fades. We'll revisit this idea when we turn the focus to Garth the Green and the Horn God archetype, a subject I am eager to get into. So as we can see from this list, the drinking the light or drinking the sun phrases are consistently used in a way which refers to the Lightbringer meteors, and I believe this is in accordance with Bloodstone as being a stone which darkens the sun, which drinks its light. Since it is one of the first basic facts we are given about the meteors, that they drank the fire of the sun, I think it's quite important. Essentially, I see this as a corroboration of the general premise of the last episode, that the Bloodstone Emperor Azor Ahai represents the inverted Solar King who brought the Long Night, and that Lightbringer is associated with shadow and darkness, with drinking the light instead of giving it off. Contrast the Alive with Light language applied to the sword Dawn with the idea of drinking the sun's light associated with Oathkeeper and Widow's Whale. Should we really expect Azor High's sword to give off light? Not any kind of natural light, that's for sure. It should be light or fire that has been turned somehow. I can't help but think that the concept of black fire goes back to Lightbringer as well. All the symbolism between the black dragons and Lightbringer match, so I don't see why Azor High's sword wouldn't light up with black and red flame. I've got my fingers crossed that Brienne's sun-drinking red and black sword might have a chance of doing the black fire thing. Perhaps the sword Blackfire itself, if it ever surfaces. Fingers crossed. To finish up on Oathkeeper and Widow's Whale, here are the ways in which these swords act like Bloodstone. They're consecrated in blood like Bloodstone. They turn in the sunlight like Bloodstone. They drink the sunlight like Bloodstone. They darken the sun's reflection to the color of blood like Bloodstone. And they imply a submersion in water as they darken the sun's reflection to blood, like Bloodstone. I believe this is good evidence in support of the ideas laid out so far concerning Bloodstone and Lightbringer, and that the waves of blood and night swords, which drink the light, are a part of the Lightbringer family of symbolism. And what a beautiful family it is. This also raises the possibility that Ned's sun-drinking black sword is literally made from moon meteor stone. Perhaps it's the original Lightbringer of Azor High, kept in the crypts of Winterfell for millennia until it could be passed off as Valyrian steel. Or perhaps the Valerians sold Ned's ancestor, Lightbringer, by accident. 
Whoops. So now I'm picturing some silver-haired Valerian intern getting fed to a dragon by his superiors for selling Ned's great-granddaddy Lightbringer by mistake. Sorry about that. You're fired! Or perhaps all Valerian steel has black meteor stone in it. That's more likely to be the case. It's hard to know because we haven't seen anyone else try to color another Valerian steel sword, as Tobo did to Ned's sword, so we don't know if the weird way Ned's sword acts is unique or not. I'm going to do an in-depth episode focusing on Valyrian steel swords exclusively, and we'll take a detailed look at what exactly happens when ice is split and reforged, and see if we can't answer that question. Section 6. The Black Dread Reborn Compare the three bloody flood motifs that we've examined so far. The Black and Bloody Tides the waves of night and blood, and the red fire and rivers of black ice, to one of our other prime Lightbringer symbols, Drogon, and notice the tight correlations in the wording. The black dragon in Danny's dream, which represents Drogon, has scales, quote, black as night, wet and slick with blood, which matches the waves of night and blood language pretty much exactly. Drogon's egg, meanwhile, is called black as a midnight sea, like waves of night, in other words, yet alive with scarlet ripples and swirls. There's our waves of blood, and the whole thing speaks of a black and bloody tide from the sea. When Drogon's egg finally hatches, there are many uses of watery language to describe the fire, which I highlighted when we dissected that scene in the first podcast. Drogon's blood, of course, is black and burning. Aegon's dragons were named for the gods of old Valyria, she told her blood riders one morning after a long night's journey. Visenya's dragon was Vagar, Rhaenys had Meraxes, and Aegon rode Balerion, the Black Dread. It was said that Vagar's breath was so hot that it could melt a knight's armor and cook the man inside, that Meraxes swallowed horses whole, and Balerion? His fire was as black as his scales, his wings so vast that whole towns were swallowed up in their shadow when he passed overhead. The Dothraki looked at her hatchlings uneasily. The largest of her three was shiny black, his scales slashed with streaks of vivid scarlet to match his wings and horns. Khaleesi, Ego murmured. There sits Balerion, come again. It may be as you say, blood of my blood, Danny replied gravely, but he shall have a new name for this new life. He is Balerion the Black Dread, come again, and like Balerion, Drogon the Winged Shadow has that black fire shot through with red. Although this fire can still be bright when in a very dark place, such as the House of the Undying, where Drogon's fire is described as bright and hot, the general notion of fire which is black speaks of inverting the luminescent qualities of fire. In other words, drinking the light, darkening the sun's fire, etc. The House of the Undying example is the only time his fire is ever called bright. Every other time it's dark flame or black fire. As an aside, The idea that even the black fire of the black dragon can be bright in comparison to unnatural blue shadows like the Undying might suggest that Lightbringer, the evil black sword, could still be effective in fighting the others. This could be the potential redemption arc for Lightbringer which I have mentioned a few times. Perhaps the idea is that we have to drink that blue starlight clean out of their bodies so that they melt into a little puddle. Drogon also matches other aspects of Bloodstone. Surprise, surprise such as the idea of bloodstone being a sunstone, which is imbued with the power of the sun, due to all that sun drinking it's done, of course. 
The Carthene myth tells us that the dragon meteors drank the fire of the sun, and that that is why they breathe flame. They've been imbued with solar power. Dark solar power, but still. Last time, we examined a couple of quotes that show that Lightbringer is imbued with the power of the sun. It's called, The sun made steel, when Stannis unsheathes it at the wall, and Gren tells Jon that it glows like it had a piece of the sun inside it. Drogon, who is himself fire-made flesh, has some similar quotes. She put her palm against the black egg. Fingers spread gently across the curve of the shell. The stone was warm, almost hot. The sun, Danny whispered. The sun warmed them as they rode. There's also this line about living Drogon from A Dance with Dragons. Drogon was curled up beneath her arm, as hot as a stone that is soaked all day in the blazing sun. Look, he's even curled into a cute little Drogon ball. The language here is pretty specific. Drogon soaks up the sun like a stone. He's just like Bloodstone, a stone which drinks the sun and is therefore imbued with solar energy. Let's even slip in a little Eclipse talk here too, because Drogon, the winged shadow, seems to have a habit of covering things in shadow. Who would have thought? We already saw that Balerion's wings could swallow a whole town in shadow when he passed overhead, when he eclipses the sun, in other words, and Drogon exhibits the same behavior. This is from the end of A Dance with Dragons, as Danny is stranded with Drogon in the Dothraki Sea. The second time he passed before the sun, his black wings spread, and the world darkened. Earlier in A Dance with Dragons, when Drogon lands in the fighting pits with Daenerys like her knight in shining armor, we get this quote. Drogon rose, his wings covering her in shadow. Danny swung the lash at his scaled belly back and forth until her arm began to ache. His long serpentine neck bent like an archer's bow. With a hiss, he spat black fire down at her. Danny darted underneath the flames, swinging the whip and shouting, No! 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 Get down! His answering roar was full of fear and fury, full of pain. His wings beat once, twice, and folded. The dragon gave one last hiss and stretched out flat upon his belly. Black blood was flowing from the wound where the spear had pierced him, smoking where it dripped onto the scorched sands. He is fire made flesh, she thought, and so am I. Drogon is just kind of showing off the range of Lightbringer symbolism here. A serpent, an archer's bow, a spear, a whip, wings of shadow, burning black blood, black fire, smoke, and then Drogon also rose, like a rising sun or a moon or a star. The folded wings may reference the idea of folded steel, Valyrian steel, which is steel made in dragonfire, of course. The mention of the whip, also called a lash in this scene, brings up a little detail I'd like to clean up from the first podcast. During the alchemical wedding scene, I pointed to Drogo's flaming lash, which seems to crack open the first dragon's egg as the specific symbol of Lightbringer the Comet. Now, she thought, now! And for an instant she glimpsed Khal Drogo before her, mounted on his smoky stallion, a flaming lash in his hand. He smiled, and the whip snaked down at the pyre, hissing. I neglected to point out that at the beginning of the scene, Danny looks right at the comet and calls it the dragon's tail. The tails of dragons are in turn often described as a whip and a lash. It happened twice in the fighting pit scene, a bit before the section I quoted. The idea that a dragon's tail can refer to either the red comet or a lash reinforces the idea that Drogo's hissing, flaming lash was in fact meant to represent the comet as it snaked down and cracked the stone egg, just like Lightbringer is supposed to do. 
Just for good measure, George also gives us several occurrences of a whip cracking like thunder, evoking the lightning-thunderbolt motif and Bloodstone's association with causing lightning and thunderstorms, while the dragon's eggs cracked by Drogo's fiery, hissing lash make a sound which is as loud and sharp as thunder. Drogon himself also brings thunder, as we see in this earlier quote from the Daznax pit scene. Above them all the dragon turned, dark against the sun. His scales were black, and his eyes and horns and spinal plates blood red. Ever the largest of her three, in the wild Drogon had grown larger still. His wings stretched twenty feet from tip to tip, black as jet. He flapped them once as he swept back above the sands, and the sound was like a clap of thunder. The flying dragon turns dark against the sun, evoking the sun-turning definition of heliotrope and the ideas of darkening the sun and eclipsing the sun. Dark against the sun implies an eclipse, with Drogon playing the role of dragon moon superimposed over the sun. Drogon's red is called blood red to go along with all the various times his scales have been called black as night, night and blood once again. Elsewhere in A Dance with Dragons, Drogon's eyes are called pits of fire and smoldering red pits, which reminds us of the black and bloody holes in the decapitated heads of the Night's Watch brothers. Even better, Danny actually sees herself in the reflection of Drogon's red eyes in the pit scene, and since reborn Daenerys is now a solar king, Azor High Reborn, Drogon's eyes are acting like sun mirrors. But of course, the reflected image of the sun is turned to the color of blood, like a true bloodstone. There's just one more bloodstone idea to be found with Drogon. Bloodstone is sometimes called the Mother Goddess Stone, and it's associated with moon goddesses who resurrect the dead solar king, like Isis, Inanna, and Ishtar or Astarte. Drogon is a symbol of Azor High Reborn and Lightbringer, which parallels the idea that Drogon is named after Drogo and hatches when Drogo is burned, or even that Drogon contains some element of Drogo's spirit or life force. Danny hatched Drogon, so in other words, she resurrected the Solar King. There are actually a lot of Ishtar-Daenerys parallels. Ishtar's statues usually have amethyst eyes, for a start, but I will save that for a future essay focusing on moon goddesses and night goddesses. The Red Comet, which also represents reborn Drogo, is of course a bleeding stone, so again, we see the resurrection of the Solar King concept intertwined with Bloodstone. I've mentioned that Azor Ahai Reborn can manifest as either resurrected Azor Ahai or as the child of Azor Ahai. You might even be tired of me saying it. But consider this. Drogon represents both resurrected Solar King and Danny's child. And that's exactly what I'm talking about with consistency of symbols. Martin devises ways to create symbols which represent two concepts at once, or even more than two. And then there's this bit from A Dance with the Dragons as Daenerys ponders the meaning of Miri Mazdor's prophecy. The meaning was plain enough. Khal Drogo was as like to return from the dead as she was to bear a living child. Khal Drogo returning from the dead and Danny bearing a living child would both represent Azor Ahai reborn, just as Drogon represents both reborn Drogo and Danny's living child. All in all, we can see that Drogon is a Lightbringer symbol par excellence, and just like Oathkeeper and Widow's Whale, he's showing off many of the attributes of Bloodstone. And now a brief musical interlude from Animals as Leaders. 
Beam of light, sun and moon, shine and beast, man and woman, I am passing through. Come outside among the people, I am light, gaze on me. Moon and darkness, sun and morning, light is what I will on earth, along the Nile, among the people. I have traveled through the tomb, dark and lonely ground, I am here now, I have come, I see. In the underworld, I embrace my father. I have burned away his darkness. I am his beloved. I have killed the snake. I have given him meat. I walk in my sleep through earth and heaven. I have set the sky in two parts. I pass through. I wander the horizons. I have dusted my feet with earth. I have worn the skin of a black panther chanted into the ears of children. I eat with my mouth. I chew with my jaw. I am the living God come forth. I am with the earth millions of years. The Egyptian Book of the Dead. Section 7 Dark Wings, Dark Stars. The ultimate sun-drinking quote comes from a brand chapter of A Dance with Dragons. What, I ask you, is the absolute epitome of drinking sunlight? In the whole entire universe, what's the most well-known mascot of drinking the light? Why, a black hole, of course. A dark star. Since the chief sun-drinker in our story is the moon, it sure would be nice if Martin found some way to describe the moon as a black hole. The moon was a black hole in the sky. Wolves howled in the wood, sniffing through their snowdrifts after dead things. A murder of ravens erupted from the hillside, screaming their sharp cries, black wings beating above a white world. A red sun rose and set and rose again, painting the snows in shades of rose and pink. Under the hill, Jojen brooded, Mira fretted, and Hodor wandered through the dark tunnels with a sword in his right hand and a torch in his left. Or was it Bran wandering? No one must ever know. All right, now we're getting somewhere. This moon is a black hole, a dark star, a light vortex. It's like a B-side to Soundgarden's black hole sun. Black hole moon. First, wave hello to Mithras. The sword in one hand and torch in the other of brand-controlled Hodor is a clear allusion to rock-born Mithras with his sword and torch. Mithras Hodorbran wanders, the word is used twice, as the sun rose and set and rose again, giving us the idea of a dying and resurrected sun, or perhaps a dying and resurrected solar deity. Which is exactly what Mithras is, of course, and it's what Azor High seems to be. Okay, so let's talk about ravens. Ravens are obviously a very important symbol in the novels, woven through many scenes and chapters in every book. Similarly, I think they are a very important symbol in regards to mythical astronomy. It may not surprise you that I am going to propose that ravens and crows represent black moon meteors. There are several reasons for this, so here it goes. Crows and ravens are flying black things, like the meteors. Note the synergy of blackness in this quote between the abyss, the ravens, the crows, and the black hole moon. The moon is a black hole, while the abyss gets an entire paragraph dedicated to describing how uber black it is. That's so metal, bro. The ravens erupt like meteors, and just when the moon is a black hole, that's exactly when we should see meteors. 
The ravens have beating black wings. Beating like a heart pumping black blood, I would say. It reminds us of Orel's eagle with its heart burnt to a blackened cinder by fire magic, as well as the other black hearts we've discussed. Just the other day I noticed that Robert refers to having driven the spike of his warhammer right into Rhaegar's black heart, which is perfect, since Rhaegar is a terrific incarnation of the Azor High Dark Solar King archetype, the Black Dragon. Then we have the black feathers of a crow, to which the light-drinking abyss is compared. This certainly puts us in mind of the Night's Watch, who are called crows, and who are said to have black blood. Crows and ravens basically share the same symbolism. They're like cousins, as we are told by Maester Aemon. Darkness, black blood, erupting or pouring forth, drinking light and killing the light. Stop me if this sounds familiar to you. These two paragraphs seem like a terrific example of George presenting us with a cohesive set of symbols which all pertain to the same thing, a technique which we have seen many times by now. The Raven-Meteor parallels actually go a bit further, too. The Maester's chain link for learning Ravencraft is, wait for it, Black Iron. Black Iron meteorites are exactly what we are talking about. Those are the ones you can make swords from. The ravens come from places which symbolize the celestial realm. In the above quote, it was the hillside, which is something like a small mountain. Just as with mountains and towers and people, the tops of trees can also be used to symbolize the celestial realm, as it is in the real world with the Yggdrasil tree of Norse myth and many other mythological world trees. Items placed in the upper branches of such a tree therefore represent heavenly bodies. Of course, the limbs of the weirwood tree are usually where we find the ravens. That's also where we find the red leaves of the weirwood tree, which are described as either bits of flame or bloody hands, both of which are familiar to us as moon meteor symbols. Now there's an entire black abyss of symbolism around red and bloody hands that we can fall into, another time perhaps, such as Bonero in his fiery-fingered moon destruction pantomime, or with Timit, the red hand of the burned men in the mountains of the moon. We've also got Jon Snow, who burns his hand fighting the whites, and then shortly after, gets both arms bloody to the elbow while flinging dead meat to the ravens. We'll stop there for now, but the point is made. Bloody hands, or flaming hands, represent the fiery hand of God, which flings the bloody meteors, so to speak, and I believe that's why Martin chose them as symbols for the weirwood leaves, because the branches of the tree represent the celestial realm. That also includes things besides the ravens and the red leaves, such as fruit, when Martin wants to show a star being plucked from the sky. This also ties into the Garden of Eden story and the fruit of the tree, which represents the knowledge of the gods that Adam ate. Stealing the knowledge of the gods, plucking the apple from the tree, plucking the moon from heaven. This is the well-known mythological theme which George is making excellent use of. Ravens are used as messengers. Dark wings, dark words, as they say. They are viewed as omens, dark ones, and the red comet is called the red messenger, and is said to foretell blood and fire. You might even say that these meteors were messengers of starry wisdom, since the bloodstone emperor worshipped his black stone and became the high priest of said starry wisdom church. The red comet is also called the sword that slays the seasons, just as the white ravens are sent out to herald the change of the seasons. I think the White Ravens being the ones to herald the season change is interesting, because Lightbringer was white-hot right before it stabbed Nissa Nissa, and we've talked about that correlating to the original Lightbringer comet being white and pale blue like a normal comet before it struck the moon, with the surviving half only turning red after passing through the fire. The White Raven, or White Comet, heralded the change of the season, 
from fall to winter, but then we only got the black ravens and black meteors during the night. This would also square with the idea of the Sword Dawn, representing some kind of technology from the lost great empire of the Dawn, whose gemstone emperors appeared to Daenerys in her Wake the Dragon dream, holding swords of pale fire. It seems like Azor Ahai's black sword might be a corrupt version of the original design, which shone with pale flame. Not only do crows and ravens erupt from the heavens and drink the light, they're good for eclipses too. Since we have the raven imagery fresh in our minds, let's take a look at this quote, the scene in which Cold Hands makes his dramatic entrance stage left. Fear! The raven landed on his shoulder. Fear! Fire! Fear! It flapped its wings and screamed along with Gilly. The whites were almost on her. He heard the dark red leaves of the weirwood rustling, whispering to one another in a tongue he did not know. The starlight itself seemed to stir, and all around them the trees groaned and creaked. Sam Tarley turned the color of curdled milk, and his eyes went as wide as plates. Ravens! They were in the weirwood, hundreds of them, thousands, perched on the bone-white branches, peering between the leaves. He saw their beaks open as they screamed. He saw them spread their black wings, shrieking, flapping. They descended on the whites in angry clouds. They swarmed round Chet's face and pecked at his blue eyes. They covered the sister man like flies. They plucked gobbets from inside Hake's shattered head. There were so many that when Sam looked up, he could not see the moon. Go! said the bird on his shoulder. Go! 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 A fabulous clue that the limbs of the weirwood represent the celestial realm comes here as the starlight stirs while the leaves whisper. Whispering leaves is in fact the communication medium of the weirwoods, as we have seen with several brand scenes throughout the series. Starlight, too, whispers, to Daenerys on three different occasions. I believe this relates to the concept of starry wisdom, the wisdom of the heavens. In one scene, Quaithe is literally manifesting herself as a mask of starlight in the sky, while whispering advice, or wisdom, to Danny. Being a shadowbinder from a shy who dispenses wisdom through starlight, Quaithe is a prime candidate to be an actual devotee of the Church of Starry Wisdom. I certainly tend to think of her in this way. In any case, we see the leaves whispering and the starlight stirring in the same sentence, and right at the crucial moment. From the celestial realm of the Weirwood, angry clouds of ravens with sharp beaks and cries pour forth, so many that they blot out the moon. During the long night, everyone gets eclipsed. All heavenly lights are blotted out. You might say that when the moon disappears from sight, we get angry clouds of black death messengers. There's a cool line in A Clash of Kings from Salador San that's quite similar. When you speak to King Stannis, mention, if you would, that he will only another 30,000 dragons come the black of the moon. He ought to have given those gods to me. They were too beautiful to burn and might have brought a noble price in Pentos or Mir. Just as we get clouds of black sun-drinking ravens when the moon is a black hole or when the moon is blotted out, we also get thousands of dragons come the black of the moon. George has written this paragraph so that Salador seems to want the dragons and the burning gods, and that's because the dragons we are really talking about, the flaming moon meteors, are to be thought of as pieces of a burning god or goddess. When the moon turns black, the dragons are coming. Elsewhere in the same book, it says that King Stannis' fiery heart banner arrived at King's Landing during the black of the moon. Aegon the Conqueror was the original king that landed here, he with his night-black armor, black dragon, and black fire sword. 
Stannis is the king who's landing now, and he's an Azor high symbol with a fiery heart and a flaming sword called Lightbringer. The fiery heart calls out to Nissa Nissa's burned heart, as well as the idea of a meteor being the heart of a fallen star, a burning one to be sure. In other words, the king that lands by the black water is a fiery heart and a black dragon, a Zorahai reborn in the form of a black meteor, burning red. This meteor lands when the moon turns black. Note also the parallel this draws between Stannis' Lightbringer and Aegon's sword Blackfire, potentially another clue that Azorahai's Lightbringer lit up with black fire. One more for good measure, this time mixing the red comet with the ravens and the stars. This is from A Clash of Kings. John clapped him on the shoulder with his burned hand. They walked back through the camp together. Cook fires were being lit all around them. Overhead, the stars were coming out. The long red tail of Mormont's torch burned as bright as the moon. John heard the ravens before he saw them. Some were calling his name. The birds were not shy when it came to making noise. The idea here is that the ravens and the stars that are coming out, as in coming out of the sky, both represent the moon meteors. So looking at the sequence of symbols in this passage, we see that the stars come out as the red wanderer burns as brightly as the moon. In other words, after the comet and moon both burn brightly. Immediately after, the black ravens come. It goes one level further, actually, because Sam is said to have a moon face on four separate occasions, while John, of course, represents Azor High. So when he claps Sam on the shoulder with his burned hand, we can imagine the burning hand of the sun clapping the moon, thunderclapping more like. And right after, the stars and cookfires come out, the comet and moon burn, and the ravens come in the darkness. We've one last note on ravens and crows as meteors. Remember John's dream of black ice armor and a burning red sword? Of course you do. We've talked about it enough. Well, in that dream, the Scarecrow brothers, the ones who represent fallen Night's Watch brothers or missing Night's Watch brothers, are said to tumble down black cloaks ablaze. Now you can see that these burning crows are representations of flaming meteors, black flying things burning red. They come from the top of the wall, which means the celestial realm, as John performs the deeds of Azor High and the Bloodstone Emperor, just as the black meteors would come from the sky as the comet stabs the moon. As to the ramifications of the Night's Watch being one of the many black meteor symbols, let's consider. The meteors function as reborn Azor High's dragons, or as his lightbringer. The Night's Watch is a sword in the darkness, and they fight the others with flame, so that lines up. Does this suggest that the original Night's Watch were Azor Ahai's troops, his warriors? This could work with the idea that the last hero was the son of Azor Ahai, what you might call Azor Ahai Reborn. John was Lord Commander when he had his Azor Ahai dream, commanding his Scarecrow Night's Watch brothers to feed them flame. He also seems to be playing the role of last hero in that dream, abandoned and alone as he fights the undead enemies scuttling up the ice. Another possible meaning of the Black Brothers' Black Meteors equivalency that I can think of would be the idea that perhaps the original Night's Watch all wielded Dragonsteel, or perhaps just Dragonglass. We know the latter is true, and Dragonglass, as black frozen fire that can make blades, works as a fine meteor symbol in its own right, as I believe it did with the Doom and the idea of the reign of black blood and Dragonglass. So, we've seen ravens erupt as the moon was a black hole. We've seen ravens descend in angry clouds that blot out the moon, a type of eclipse. We've seen thousands of dragons promised by an Azor Ahai type come the black of the moon. 
We've seen Drogon eclipse the sun on two occasions. To round out this group, I give you the Dark Star Eclipse. He kept his face clean-shaven, but his thick hair fell to his collar like a silver glacier, divided by a streak of midnight black. He has a cruel mouth, though, and a crueler tongue. His eyes seemed black as he sat outlined against the dying sun, sharpening his steel. But she had looked at them from a closer vantage, and she knew that they were purple, dark purple, dark and angry. He must have felt her gaze upon him, for he looked up from his sword, met her eyes, and smiled. Ariane felt heat rushing to her face. I should never have brought him. If he gives me such a look when Eris is here, we will have blood on the sand. Dark Star is outlined against the dying sun here, which means he's standing in front of it. In other words, the Dark Star is in eclipse position, and sharpening steel swords preparing to unleash the storm. The moon is a black hole in a dark star, and when the sun died and the swords came out, the moon appeared black as it stood outlined against the dying sun. It's the same language as we saw with Drogon, turning dark against the sun as he passed in front of it. I think it's really cool how we see these symbols of the Azor High Reborn Dark Solar King archetype like Drogon and Darkstar eclipsing the sun. I would think it's cool because it supports my theory about Bloodstone and the moon and eclipses and all that, but perhaps you think it's cool as well. Section 8. We See Dead People Recall back to the Black Hole Moon quote, where we saw Mithras Hoderbrand wandering with the sword and the torch, and right next to a sentence about the red sun rising and setting and rising again. I mentioned that Mithras is a resurrected solar king, just as Azor Ahai reborn is. Danny is reborn in fire to become the last dragon, and in the dark star eclipse seen above, the sun that he eclipses is a dying sun. Beric is a literally resurrected Azor Ahai bloodstone emperor figure, and of course Jon Snow seems headed for some kind of resurrection. Bloodraven too is half a corpse. Heck, there's even persistent talk of Rhaegar being resurrected, such as when the rumor monger in Vase Dothrak says that Rhaegar has, quote, returned from the dead and was marshalling a vast host of ancient heroes on Dragonstone to reclaim his father's throne. Or when Cersei first beholds Orain Waters and almost thought Rhaegar Targaryen had returned from the ashes. Jamie even sees Rhaegar's shade in his weirwood stump flaming sword dream. The whole point of following all this symbolism is to gain insight about the story and the characters, of course. And when an idea manifests as consistently as this, we have to ponder the meaning. I can't help but wonder if the message here is that Azor Ahai became an undead person at some point. The Bloodstone Emperor was said to practice necromancy, and the city of Nefer, home of Azor Ahai lookalike Neferion, is known for their necromancy. Meanwhile, Benero, the high priest of the Red Temple in Volantis, says that Daenerys is Azor Ahai returned, and that, quote, Death itself will bend its knee, and all those who die fighting in her cause shall be reborn. But I bet the people in the crowd weren't thinking reborn as in zombies. Hilariously, right after this line, Tyrion asks Halden Halfmaester, Do I have to be reborn in the same body? Yes, Tyrion, I'm afraid that's part of the deal. The point is, the theme of necromancy and resurrection, zombies in other words, is pretty thick. Undead or half-dead Azor Ahai is a distinct possibility that we have to consider. I'd even say it's more likely than not, given what we have seen from zombies so far in the story. 
Taking this one step further, I'm actually seeing clues about undead black brothers who defend the wall during the original Long Night as well. Last time, I talked about how the Scarecrow brothers on top of the wall, the ones stuffed with straw, were named after fallen or absent Night's Watch brothers. Those are the ones who tumbled down from the wall, Black Cloaks ablaze, in John's Azor High Dream. Now consider the other black-cloaked scarecrow in the story, Barak, who was called a scarecrow and has actual black blood. Barak was resurrected by fire. He's a fiery undead, a burning scarecrow. Therefore, I think it's possible that the burning scarecrow brothers in John's dream represent undead black brothers fighting with undead Azor High at the wall during the original Long Night. We've already seen one undead black brother, Cold Hands, and we're about to have another in the form of Jon Snow. Let's consider Jon's dream atop the wall from the standpoint of Jon as the last hero. We are told that the last hero has 12 companions who died, and that the last hero ended up by himself against the others, before receiving some kind of unspecified aid from the children of the forest. Similarly, Jon finds himself abandoned and alone atop the wall. But is he? No, actually. He has those burning Scarecrow brothers. If those represent Undead Night's Watch, then perhaps the twelve dead companions of the last hero were more like twelve undead companions. We are also told that Azor Ahai did not win his battles alone, and there's a song about the Night's Watch riding out to fight the others for the War of the Dawn, both of which make it seem like the person fighting the others shouldn't be by themselves. Perhaps the Night's Watch did ride out to fight the others with the last hero, but they might have all been undead or resurrected people. And that makes a lot of sense, practically speaking. It's kind of weird to talk about the practicalities of being undead, but think about it. Think about the unique skill set of the conscious undead, and how perfectly it is tailored to the needs of journeying into the frozen dead lands to face the others. Cold Hands doesn't have to worry about sleep or food. Neither does Mel or Beric, for that matter. And Cold Hands is impervious to cold. And Melisandre seems to be so as well although for different reasons. Whether these twelve undead companions of the last hero were reanimated by ice or fire, they have specific attributes which would be very, very useful for anyone trying to do what the last hero and his party were doing. And again, this is most likely what John is headed for, some kind of undead, resurrected state. And John may very well be playing the role of the last hero. If the original hero was resurrected too, then it all fits together pretty well, with the future echoing the past, as it often does. The last thing I'll say about this is that the three people I cited as examples, Cold Hands, Beric, and Melisandre, all have access to magic. Beric is the least magical, but he does light his sword on fire with his own black blood, and that's definitely magic. Melisandre is a given. Birthing shadow babies and burning eagles out of the sky is proof enough of potent magic. Cold Hands, meanwhile, communicates with the ravens and the great elk, just like a green seer or skin changer. The elk should be afraid of his corpse stink, but instead, he obeys cold hands, even after they split up. The elk takes the children to a predetermined location of cold hands choosing. The ravens flock to him at night as if he were a weirwood tree, and he's communicating with them in a few scenes as well. They attack the whites in concert with cold hands' rescue of Sam and Gilly, and they might have also attacked with him when he killed the Night's Watch mutineers. Cold Hands is acting like a powerful skin changer or green seer, except he's undead. And no, I absolutely do not buy even the possibility that is being skin changed by Blood Raven. What we can conclude from all this is that resurrected or transformed states of being do not seem to decrease one's magic. 
If you think about it, this makes a lot of sense. Resurrected John is probably going to need more magic at his disposal, not less. I've actually got a lot of notes and evidence gathered on this specific topic, and it's one of the ones we'll be turning to in the fairly near future as I pivot from all the Azor High stuff over to Green Seers and Skin Changers and Weirwoods. That's right, we will eventually be talking about things other than Lightbringer and Moon Meteors, I promise. To finish up the sun-turning ideas, I'll toss you some lighter fare, something fun to break up all the bloodshed. There exists a modern device called a heliotrope that uses mirrors to reflect sunlight over great distances to mark the positions of participants in a land survey. This device uses regular mirrors, not mirrors made from actual heliotrope stone. Rather, it's the sun mirror connotations of heliotrope that they were naming the instrument for. This calls to mind the tale of Sirwin of the Mirror Shield, who slew the dragon Urax with a spear throw to the eye after using his shield as a mirror, a trick which seems to be drawn from the slaying of the serpent goddess Medusa of Greek mythology, where Perseus used a similar mirror shield trick to turn the Medusa to stone with her own reflection. Even without the bloodstone sun mirror idea in mind, it's easy to see why George might use the Medusa myth as inspiration, since it has a goddess turning into a stone snake with more than one head. The story of Surin of the Mirror Shield is actually a detailed celestial metaphor with direct relevance to the Azor High legend, as we'll show in a future essay when we talk about the God's Eye. There's also a moment in the Oberyn vs. Mountain fight where Oberyn uses the Sun Mirror trick. That's absolutely not a coincidence, as we will show when we break down that scene. We also saw this symbol in the eyes of Danny's dragons, which can be described as either polished shields or mirrors. Naturally, those mirrors reflect only blood and fire. And this is one of those times when I'll remind you guys that I have pictures on my WordPress page on the text versions of these essays. And I found some uh, kooky old picture of some guy from like the 1800s using one of these crazy heliotrope devices. It's, it's pretty funny, I gotta say. Section 9. Purple Flowers and Poison Kisses Don't be fooled by the title, folks. We're still talking about blood. Now, the term heliotropism is used to describe certain species of flowering plants, genus Heliotropium in particular, which turn their flowers to face the sun as it moves throughout the day. The concept of the heliotropic plant is another application of the idea of sun-turning. Remember that heliotrope is made up of root words which mean sun and to turn. In this case, the heliotrope flowers are turning towards the sun, the better to drink the sunlight, instead of bending, refracting, or darkening the sunlight. There's actually a Greek myth behind this idea, that of the Oceanid nymph Clyte, who along with her six Oceanid sisters were goddesses of the clouds and fresh water. Clyte was loved by the sun god Helios, but after he left her for the white goddess Leucothea, a sea goddess, Clyte pined away for Helios for nine days, lying on the ground and turning her head to follow the sun in its course throughout the day until her limbs took root and she was transformed into the sun-gazing flower, the heliotrope. It's important to note that this myth puts the heliotrope in the role of the female lover of the sun god, which in our celestial model would be represented by the moon goddess, who was indeed a sun drinker. Helios, the sun god, even loves her and leaves her for another. That sounds a lot like the part of the Carthian legend that prophesies that one day the other moon will kiss the sun too. The sun is supposed to have two wives, two moons after all, 
so this is a convenient Greek myth for George to rope into his Bloodstone lore. It's likely he chose Bloodstone for some of the reasons I've listed already, the martyr stone idea most of all. But having done so, he likely would have noticed the Greek myth of Clytie the Heliotrope, since it fits so nicely into his sun-god-with-two-wives motif. There's actually another reason that I can confidently say that the Heliotropian plants have been part of George's thinking since the very beginning of the first book. Why do I say this? Well, one of the plants in genus Heliotropium is called a valerian. You might have caught your spell check trying to change valerian to this word, in fact. That's valerian with an E-R instead of a Y-R for those of you who are listening and not reading. The valerian plant has flowers which are, and you're going to like this, purple. Well, white or pink or purple, but still, valerians have purple flowers, and they are heliotropes. Daenerys is the character in the main story who most prominently symbolizes the second moon, and she is, of course, a valerian with purple eyes. The amethyst empress, another symbol of the second moon, is obviously associated with purple via her name. The idea of the purple valerian flower being a type of heliotropium might suggest that the valerians are descended from the bloodstone emperor, the amethyst empress, or both. And actually, I have suggested that very thing in another essay, which will actually be the basis for an upcoming joint podcast between the mythical astronomy of ice and fire and the history of Westeros podcast. That will probably be the next episode you will see after this one, so look out for that. Interestingly, the purple variety of Valerian is also called the Jacob's Ladder, tying into the theme of men who challenge God and seek to gain access to the heavens. I don't mean to make too much of this little bit, but it just kind of shows how naturally the heliotrope bloodstone lore fits into the themes and ideas George was already working with. In other words, where did George get the idea for the name of the Valerians? The answer is, from the heliotrope flower. The thing I'm trying to emphasize is that it would seem he had the Bloodstone-Heliotrope-Valerian connections in mind before he ever began writing the story. That fits with my general premise of these essays, that George has a kind of master plan or pattern from the beginning, which he has hidden in metaphor in every book, one based on the forging of Lightbringer, Long Night Disaster. Early on in A Game of Thrones, there's another amusing clue that George was thinking about Heliotrope as both flower and bloodstone from the very start. The party from Winterfell is making its way down the King's Road through the Neck, and Arya muddies herself collecting purple and green flowers for Ned. She earns praise from Ned and makes Sansa wroth. But there's a catch. Then it turned out the purple flowers were called Poison Kisses, and Arya got a rash on her arms. The forging of Lightbringer is also a procreative act, but one that poisons the Moonrock. Thus, Poison Kisses are a perfect description of what's going on here. A snake bite is a poison kiss too, in other words, and these black bloodstone meteors are like poisonous snakes. But poison kisses can also be purple flowers, as we see here, which makes perfect sense when you discover the heliotrope connections. In fact, real heliotropian plants are actually toxic to people and animals. Personally, I'm impressed with the creativity on display here by our beloved author, weaving these ideas together in a way that makes terrific sense and creates compelling imagery. To drive the point home, the paragraph above continues on to say that Arya also had purple welts and bruises on her body, which of course she received from sword fighting practice with Micah. The purple bruises left by the sword parallel the purple flowers that leave a rash, and tie the poison purple flowers to swords striking moon maidens. 
Swords and poisonous purple flowers alike leave a mark on Moon Maidens. That's the idea. In A Dance with Dragons, we see a follow-up to this scene as Theon goes to Moat Kaelin to deceive the remaining Ironborn there. This is near where Arya found the poison kisses. Theon is essentially receiving a scrolling tour of Lightbringer symbols as he rides down the causeway through the swamp. The swampy ground beyond the causeway was impassable, an endless morass of suck holes, quicksands, and glistening green swards that looked solid to the unwary eye, but turned to water the instant you trod upon them, the whole of it infested with venomous serpents and poisonous flowers, and monstrous lizard lions with teeth like daggers. Just as dangerous were its people, seldom seen but always lurking, the swamp dwellers, the frog eaters, the mud men. The Ironborn called them all bog devils. I believe this is yet another case of George using a favorite technique, listing several things which seem separate but are really all describing the same thing. Everything in the bog represents a different aspect of the Lightbringer meteors. That's my hypothesis. There are five things in the swamp. Poisonous serpents, poisonous flowers, lizard lions, bog devils, and the black stones of Moat Kaelin. Now, the poisonous serpents and flowers are two meteor symbols that we just examined in the previous scene with Arya and the poison kisses and the section about Lightbringer, the poisonous snake. So it's nice to see them here side by side to emphasize the connection. The lizard lions fit right in because the sun is chiefly depicted as a lion or a dragon, and here we get a bit of both, with the lizard suggesting the dragon and the lion symbolizing the lion. I'm kidding. The lion doesn't symbolize the lion. The lion is the lion. The teeth described as daggers matches exactly the description of the teeth of dragons, interestingly. The dragon's teeth are a natural fit for a moon meteor metaphor and are described as being like black diamonds. Diamonds are usually equated with stars, so black diamonds give us the dark star motif again. Blackness and starlight, black falling stars that bite and poison, that's how I'm seeing the bloodstone meteors. Next we have the bog devils. They are devils who blow poison darts. That's simple enough. For the fifth and final thing in the swamp, we have the black stones of Moat Kaelin. This quote is from just before the previous one. Where once a mighty curtain wall had stood, only scattered stones remained. Blocks of black basalt so large it must once have taken a hundred men to hoist them into place. Some had sunk so deep into the bog that only a corner showed. Others lay strewn about like some god's abandoned toys, cracked and crumbling, spotted with lichen. Last night's rain had left the huge stones wet and glistening, and the morning sunlight made them look as if they were coated in some fine black oil. Moat Kaelin is made from black basalt, which, like obsidian, is a lava rock, for what it's worth. It's a different sort of frozen fire in that sense. But the stones of Moat Kaelin might also fall into the class of oily stone that we see at Ashai, Yin, the Isle of Toads, and the Seastone Chair, based on this quote. It's inconclusive because the rain is helping to create the image of the oily stone. I think it's interesting to note that Yin and Moat Kaelin have the same style of construction, enormous square-hewn blocks of black stone. However, whether or not the black stones of Moat Kaelin are actually oily black stone, and therefore, according to my theory, meteorite stone, they are being used to symbolize them here. Some gods abandoned toys. That's a great description. It may be that George calls them oily-looking here just for the metaphorical purpose of using the black stones as symbols for the moon meteors. But whatever the case, God's abandoned toys are oily black stones. Even better, it's the sunlight hitting the stone which makes them look oily. The sun is the one who poisoned the moon and created the black bloodstones. 
There's actually a couple more Lightbringer symbols in the swamp, but it would take too long to explain here because I'd need to introduce new concepts for them to make any sense, so we'll save those for another time. However, in the next paragraph after seeing all these things in the swamp, we get this. Closer to the towers, corpses littered the ground on every side. Blood blooms had sprouted from their gaping wounds, pale flowers with petals plump and moist as a woman's lips. According to the Wiki of Ice and Fire, these blood blooms are apparently actual flowers that grow from corpses. That's flowers that grow from corpses, with leaves that are the color of blood and look like a woman's lips. The lips evoke the poison kisses flowers and the procreative theme of Lightbringer's forging. The blood flowers symbolize post-moon explosion flowers, the bloodstones, and so they are the color of blood. The bloodstone meteors pour forth from the moon goddess's corpse, just as the blood flowers grow from the corpses here. And of course, I have to mention the mention of the Hammer of the Waters, which comes immediately after these paragraphs. Theon remembers that the children supposedly called down the hammer from the children's tower, which now has a broken crown appropriately. It's described thusly in A Game of Thrones when they pass through for the first time. It looked as if some great beast had taken a bite out of the crenellations along the tower top and spit the rubble across the bog. Are these oily black stones in the bog some god's abandoned toys, or are they the spittle of a great beast? Again, I think the answer is all of the above. The idea of the black stones as being spit from the mouth of a great beast harkens back to the general motif of things in the mouth or coming from the mouth as representing meteors, such as dragon flame and dragon's teeth, the darts of the bog devils, fiery or bloody tongues, etc. What I love about all the symbolism around Moat Kalin and the Children's Tower is how consistent and tight it is. The language in Book 1 and Book 5 match each other and work together. You can more or less put together the whole thing with just Moat Kalin clues. The hammer of the waters is when some great beast of a deity bit the top off of a celestial tower and spit the poisonous black stones across the planet. The Children's Tower is described as slender and spear-like, calling to mind the slender-as-a-spear maidens we see from time to time, and associating the children's tower with a maiden, as it should since its broken crown represents the broken moon. And I can't help but remember the idea of Nissa Nissa as a children of the forest via the helpful elf translation of Nissa that we looked at last time. This idea is tantalizing, but needs further investigation. Returning to Ned's dream recall of the Tower of Joy, consider again the storm of flower petals in the bloody sky. This image takes on new meaning in light of these connections. If we are symbolizing the moon goddess as a flower, then the pieces of the flower, blown about in a storm, are the pieces of the moon, the moon meteors. Appropriately, they appear in a blood-streaked sky. Of course, we have a parallel heliotrope symbol to this already at the Tower of Joy, the bloody stones used to make cairns. That's pretty awesome. The sun-drinking moonflowers and the bloody stones both represented at the Tower of Joy the birthplace of the reborn black dragon, Jon Snow. As for Jon himself, he's Nissa Nissa reborn, or in this case, Lyanna reborn, just as much as he is Azor High or Rhaegar reborn, so it's cool to see the more feminine flower symbol together with the more masculine, dragon-like, bloody stone symbol at the place of his birth. Jon's personal symbolism matches this as well. When Danny sees the blue rose in the chink in the wall, which fills the air with sweetness in her House of the Undying vision, it's pretty clear that it represents Jon Snow, specifically Jon's stark heritage through his moon mother, Lyanna. 
John also has the black ice, red fire, and dragon symbolism from his solar king father, Rhaegar. Now, think about the moon as a heliotrope flower, turning to follow the sun and experiencing some kind of transformation as Clytie the Greek goddess did. The transformation cycles in A Song of Ice and Fire, which we have looked at, involve the life and death cycle, represented by darkness and light. We've seen the heliotrope moon turn the sun dark, triggering the solar king death and resurrection cycle, and the moon itself transforms and turns black as it is burnt by the Lightbringer comet. So, what is the phrase Martin has chosen to describe the passage of one month? That's right, a moon's turn. You saw that one coming, didn't you? A moon's turn is when the moon goes through one cycle, from full and bright to a black hole, and then back again. And now you know why he calls it that. Naturally, a woman's moon blood comes once a month or so, once every moon's turn. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, moon blood can be quite terrifying, and you better give it some respect. Here's Jamie in A Storm of Swords. Oh, very good, Jamie laughed. Your wits are quicker than mine, I confess it. When they found me standing over my dead king, I never thought to say, No, no, it wasn't me. It was a shadow, a terrible cold shadow. He laughed again. Tell me true, one kingslayer to another. Did the Starks pay you to slit his throat? Or was it Stannis? Had Renly spurned you? Was that the way of it? Or perhaps your moon's blood was on you. Never give a wench a sword when she's bleeding. For sure, don't give moon maidens a sword when their moon blood is on them. That can lead to the near destruction of the entire world, and also to the long night. Unfortunately, Jamie doesn't take his own advice, and this is also from A Storm of Swords. He undid his breeches and climbed up and pushed her bare white legs apart. One hand slid up her thigh and underneath her small clothes. When he tore them away, he saw that her moon's blood was on her, but it made no difference. Jamie is a solar king, so he just can't help himself from giving bloody moon maidens the sword. On the grisly side of things, this is the notorious sex scene which takes place in the sept where Joffrey's dead body lies in wake. As with dead baby Rago, we see that the son of the sun is a dead person when Lightbringer is forged. Also, Jamie literally puts Cersei on the altar of the mother while this goes down, as if Cersei were some kind of bloody moon sacrifice, which is exactly what she is. Sacrifice and procreation, together again like the best friends that we know them to be. Section 10. Sansa Stark Explains Her Moonblood Once again, it seems I've buried the lead. These blood blooms we just saw aren't the half of it when it comes to bloody moonflowers. Consider, when a maiden gets her moonblood, she is said to have flowered. When a maiden loses her virginity, when her maidenhead is broken and bleeds, she is said to have been deflowered. It's kind of a bad joke, but it's great symbolism and directly tied to the heliotropium flower bloodstone concept. Check out the very memorable scene of Sansa receiving her first moonblood in A Clash of Kings. She's been dreaming of the riot at King's Landing, and in the dream, the mob is tearing her apart, and that's where I'm picking up the quote. Then she saw the bright glimmer of steel. The knife plunged into her belly and tore and tore and tore until there was nothing left of her down there but shiny wet ribbons. When she woke, the pale light of morning was slanting through her window, yet she felt as sick and achy as if she had not slept at all. There was something sticky on her thighs. 
When she threw back the blanket and saw the blood, all she could think was that her dream had somehow come true. She remembered the knives inside her, twisting and ripping. She squirmed away in horror, kicking at the sheets and falling to the floor, breathing raggedly, naked, bloodied, and afraid. George has given us a nice connection between the flowering moonblood motifs and the moon maiden stabbing of the Lightbringer story by depicting Sansa's flowering as a knife stabbing. The sexual violence implied here calls to mind the procreation death dual nature of the Lightbringer metaphor. The bright steel glimmers, and then the blood is shiny, evoking Lightbringer, while the knife plunges and Sansa falls to the floor to evoke the falling bits of moon. The Lightbringer symbolism continues through the scene. Madness took hold of her. Pulling herself up by the bedpost, she went to the basin and washed between her legs, scrubbing away all the stickiness. By the time she was done, the water was pink with blood. When her maidservants saw, they would know. Then she remembered the bedclothes. She rushed back to the bed and stared in horror at the dark red stain and the tale it told. All she could think was that she had to get rid of it or else they'd see. She couldn't let them see or they'd marry her to Joffrey and make her lay with him. Snatching up her knife, Sansa hacked at the sheet, cutting out the stain. If they ask me about the hole, what will I say? Tears ran down her face. She pulled the torn sheet from the bed and the stained blanket as well. I'll have to burn them. She balled up the evidence, stuffed it in the fireplace, drenched it in oil from her bedside lamp, and lit it afire. Then she realized that the blood had soaked through the sheet into the feather bed, so she bundled that up as well, but it was big and cumbersome and hard to move. Sansa could only get half of it into the fire. She was on her knees, struggling to shove the mattress into the flames as the thick gray smoke eddied around her and filled the room, when the door burst open and she heard her maid gasp. Starting from the beginning of this section, we see the Bloody Moon Maiden immersing herself and creating bloody water, matching the Bloodstone Association with a bloody stone submersed in water and the idea of a Moon Maiden drowning. A bit later in this scene, Sansa again washes herself in a tub of scalding hot water, evoking the moon drowning again, and it seems notable that the World of Ice and Fire version of the Carthine Origin of Dragon story says that the moon was scalded by the sun's heat. I wouldn't base an entire theory on one word connection like this, but since it fits in with all the other symbolism, I'm inclined to think the word scalding might be chosen intentionally, but who knows. Next we see a dark red stain, which is cut out from the sheet, leaving a hole. Sounds very like a bloody moon which was cut out of the sky, leaving a hole, as we just saw with the black hole moon. The bloody sheets and blankets are then balled up, to make them more moon-like, I suppose, before being shoved into the fire. That's blood and fire, our favorite recipe. Next, the burning of the moon blood fills the room with thick gray smoke. This seems like a pretty clear allusion to the smoky haze, which caused the sun to be hidden during the long night a smoke that came from a burning and bloody moon which was cut out of the sky. Last but not least, we hear a maid gasp, which seems a likely shout-out to Moon Maiden Nissa Nissa's scream of anguish and ecstasy, which left a crack across the face of the moon, famously. Just in case you were wondering whether or not the astronomical symbolism ever manifests in the form of food symbolism, I'd have to say yes. When Sansa gets cleaned up, she dines with Cersei, who serves her porridge and milk. Okay, no big deal as well as boiled eggs, oh my, and crisp fried fish, dun-dun-dun. The boiled eggs suggest eggs which are both heated and submersed, like dragon's egg meteors which land in the sea, the sea dragon. 
A dragon which swims in the sea is a kind of fish, as I mentioned last time while discussing the fishy nature of dragons in Chinese mythology. So fried fish, again, gives us a burning sea dragon. Even better, or worse as it may happen, the sight of the food makes Sansa feel ill, a reference to the poisoning of the moon and the snake venom. Looking at the sea dragon food makes moon maiden Sansa feel sick, as well it should. The sea dragon is really the same image, created by moon maiden Sansa taking a bloody bath. It's drowning moon meteors, either way. To finish up here, George seems to be making a point about the dark nature of Lightbringer. First, there's a mention of the smoke having ruined Sansa's clothing. The moon's clothing would be her crust, her outer shell, and it is from here that we would get the stony meteors. These are the poisoned and poisonous black bloodstone meteors, which are all about defilement and corruption. And so Sansa's clothing, being ruined by the smoke, seems a reference to this idea. Then there's this exchange with Cersei, after Sansa refuses the sea dragon food. I don't blame you. Between Tyrion and Lord Stannis, everything I eat tastes of ash. And now you're setting fires as well. What did you hope to accomplish? Sansa lowered her head. The blood frightened me. The blood is the seal of your womanhood. Lady Catelyn might have prepared you. You've had your first flowering, no more. Sansa had never felt less flowery. The moon blood frightens, and Sansa doesn't feel flowery. More reference to the ominous nature of Lightbringer's forging. The moon is setting fires, and Azor High stand-in King Stannis is also filling the air with ash, as he lays siege to King's Landing with his fiery heart. Again and again, we are being told that moon burning brings smoke and ash, and that Lightbringer-wielding dudes bring smoke and ash. We are being shown that poison and sickness and corruption come with these moon meteors which represent Lightbringer. The chapter closes with a fantastic ramming home of these points. Robert wanted to be loved. My brother Tyrion has the same disease. Do you want to be loved, Sansa? Everyone wants to be loved. I see flowering hasn't made you any brighter, said Cersei. Sansa, permit me to share a bit of womanly wisdom with you on this very special day. Love is poison. A sweet poison, yes, but it will kill you all the same. It's a wonderful expression of the duality of the Lightbringer myth. Love is poison. Compare that to the poison kisses flowers which we saw a moment ago. Birth and death, bloody beds and bloody battle, bloody swords and bloody cocks, sex and swordplay. The sun loved the moon and also poisoned the moon. And the moon's flowering hasn't made her any brighter. No, quite the opposite. <laughs> I love that line. The flowering of the second moon brought darkness, fire, and blood. That's one of the fun parts of following George's mythical astronomy. He leaves these little inside jokes which you only get if you understand the astronomy side of things. George wrote these jokes years ago, almost two decades in some cases, and here we are, chuckling at them now. Recapping the chain of symbols in this scene, Moon Maiden Sansa had the knives inside her, which is very like having the fire inside you. Those bright, glimmering knives tore at her insides and triggered the moon blood, which creates a bloody bed. The Bloody Moon Maiden then immerses herself in water, creating the Sea Dragon Moon Meteor motif. Sansa cuts the dark red moon blood out of her bed, leaving a bloody hole, then balls up the moon blood, coats it with oil, there's a tremendous oily black stone reference, and burns it, filling the air with thick gray smoke. I must admit, it feels a bit funny to say, Look, George was giving us the answer to the long night all along in this scene about Sansa's period. But yeah, there it is. I'm officially making that claim. 
If you want to understand the moon blood and the long night, you have to ask Sansa. There's actually some really great setup for this whole scene earlier in the chapter, which simply adds to the richness of this metaphor. I skipped over it before so that I could get right to the point with the flowering, but having done so, let's go back to the night before Sansa had her terrifying dream and burnt all her sheets and caused the long night. Turning back to the stair, Sansa climbed. The smoke blotted out the stars and the thin crescent of the moon, so the roof was dark and thick with shadows. Yet from here she could see everything. The red keeps tall towers and great corner forts, the maze of city streets beyond, to south and west the river running black, the bay to the east, the columns of smoke and cinders and fires, fires everywhere. Soldiers crawled over the city walls like ants with torches and crowded the hoardings that had sprouted from the ramparts. Sansa, the heliotrope moon, turns, and then Stannis' smoke blots out the stars and the... Wait, was that a thin crescent moon? Right before all the moon blood? And what's this about black water? I kid, but of course, this is densely packed symbolism, yet it is familiar to us. The moon sacrifice symbol appears with the smoke that blots out the stars, and then we see fires everywhere. As a result, the top of the tower where Sansa the Moon Maiden is, looking down on the world like a goddess, is now thick with shadow. Next, Sansa sees three catapults. Think of the three heads of the dragon motif applying to moon meteors, since catapults are for flinging rocks. They don't make Sansa feel any less fearful, however, just as the moon blood frightens Sansa. Then we get this. A stab went through her, so sharp that Sansa sobbed and clutched at her belly. She might have fallen, but a shadow moved suddenly, and strong fingers grabbed her arm and steadied her. That's all pretty clear Moon Maiden stuff. Sansa is atop the tower, she sees the crescent moon blotted out, she gets stabbed and cries, and then we see the idea of falling implied, just as we saw with the rumor that Sansa turned into a winged wolf and flew out of the tower after the Purple Wedding. When this happens, a shadow moves suddenly. In this scene, Sandor is saving Sansa from falling, but that seems like more a part of the logistics of the scene than anything metaphorical, because we know the actual moon did fall, even though it's only an almost fall in this scene. But a paragraph or two later, there's more metaphor. You were glad enough to see my face when the mob had you, though, remember? Sansa remembered all too well. She remembered the way they had howled, the feel of the blood running down her cheek from where the stone had struck her, and the garlic stink on the breath of the man who had tried to pull her from her horse. She could still feel the cruel pinch of fingers on her wrist as she lost her balance and began to fall. She'd thought she was going to die then, but the fingers had twitched, all five at once, and the man had shrieked loud as a horse. When his hand fell away, another hand, stronger, shoved her back into her saddle. The man with the garlicky breath was on the ground, blood pumping out the stump of his arm, but there were others all around, some with clubs in hand. The hound leapt at them, his sword a blur of steel that trailed a red mist as it swung. When they broke and ran before him, he had laughed, his terrible burned face for a moment transformed. This is some great stuff here, because the one who pulls down the moon maiden gets his hand chopped off. That's our fiery hand of Relore, whose fingers are like fiery spears. I listed some of the relevant burned hands earlier when we talked about the leaves of the weirwood being either bloody hands or bits of flame, and this is more of the same. Right before the hand pulls her down, Sansa is struck in the face by a rock and bleeds. 
The blood runs down her cheek, evoking the bloody tears. She's even wearing a moonstone hairnet in this scene, which parallels the poison amethyst Medusa-like hairnet that she wore at the Purple Wedding, when she killed the Solar King she was supposed to marry. It's pretty much all there. The Moon Maiden stuff is really vivid in this chapter. I think this scene makes the relationship between Sansa and the Hound clear. After Sansa almost falls, again, the Hound appears, again. I think that the Hound, who was a shadow earlier on top of the tower, represents Azor High Reborn, the child of sun and moon death. In this memory of the riot, the Hound has a transformed, burned face, and a blurry sword that trails a red mist, a perfect match for Azor High Reborn in Lightbringer. A sword trailing blood makes us think of the bleeding star, the red comet, whose tail is perceived as a trail of blood. The red mist coming from the sword also ties into the reign of blood motif, which we saw in the Doom's reign of black blood and with the Valyrian steel sword Red Rain. This is another nice link between Lightbringer and Valyrian steel. Many of the names of the Valyrian steel sword seem to describe Lightbringer and its effects, such as Red Rain, Nightfall, Blackfire, Heartsbane, Bright Roar, Orphan Maker, and Longclaw, while others seem to describe the sacrificed moon, such as Dark Sister, Lady Forlorn, Widow's Wail, and Lamentation. The red mist trailing from the Hound's sword also implies the boiling and steaming blood which is the hallmark of Lightbringer transformation, just as we saw in Danny's Dragon Dream of Fire Transformation, where her blood turns to steam, or as we saw when Azor High fought a monster and boiled its insides. Remember also that the bloody skulls in Mel's vision dissolved into mist. And here, the hound's fiery face is transformed, just to re-emphasize the fire transformation aspect of the Lightbringer process. Thinking again about the hand which tries to pull Sansa down, notice that when the bloody hand goes away, the hound's stronger hand replaces it, just as Azor High Reborn replaces Azor High. Sansa starts out riding a chestnut mare, a reddish horse in other words, but the Hound puts Sansa on a black horse, symbolizing the transformation of the moon into those black moon meteors, and paralleling another moon maiden with a black mount, Danny with Drogon. Even better, the horse is called Stranger, and the Stranger of the Faith of the Seven is called the Wanderer from Far Places, which is of course a way of describing a comet, a wandering star from far places, one that is a messenger of death, like the Stranger and like the Ravens. I think all of these clues make it easy to identify Sandor in these scenes. George is using Sansa as the Moon Maiden and the Hound as the reborn solar warrior. He's a Hellhound, basically, which, like the Poison Snake, is one aspect of Lightbringer and Azor High Reborn. It's interesting to think about the Hellhound as a guardian of the moon, or as some sort of agent of lunar vengeance. Sandor seems to fill both of these roles for Sansa. We'll talk more about the Stranger and about Hellhounds in the future, but let's stick with Bloody Moonflowers for now. Now, it may seem odd to suggest that Sansa is playing the role of Sandor's mother, until you consider the song that she chose to sing for him the night he fled from King's Landing. Gentle mother, font of mercy, save our sons from war, we pray. Sandor's appearance in that scene is consistent with the Zora High Reborn. He is burned, of course. He has an iron grip and he reeks of blood, blood, blood. That's actually how it's written. George is also using the description of Sansa's tower room and the scene outside to slip us long night clues. When she enters the room, it is described as as black as pitch, and then she rips back the drapes and sees that the sky was a swirl with glowing, shifting colors 
the reflections of the great fires below, and also a swirl with fire as men died in their hundreds and their thousands. The orange and green flames warred against each other, with each birthing armies of short-lived shadows to die again an instant later. Then we read that the air itself smelt burnt, like a soup kettle which has been left on the fire too long and all the soup boiled away. Soup kettles are black iron in medieval life, so that's black iron having its contents boiled away to make the atmosphere smell burnt. Hmm. Just like Sansa's scalding bath and the boiled eggs that she was offered, this is talking about boiling and scalding the moon. I'll pick up the text again here because it's just too good to summarize. Then something stirred behind her, and a hand reached out of the dark and grabbed her wrist. Sansa opened her mouth to scream, but another hand clamped down over her face, smothering her. His fingers were rough and calloused and sticky with blood. Little bird, I knew you'd come. The voice was a drunken rasp. Outside, a swirling lance of jade light spit at the stars, filling the room with a green glare. She saw him for a moment, all black and green, the blood on his face dark as tar, his eyes glowing like a dog's in the sudden glare. Then the light faded, and he was only a hulking darkness in a stained white cloak. If you scream, I'll kill you. Believe that. He took his hand from her mouth. Well, it looks like George has found a way to slip the black blood in there, as the hound's blood is as dark as tar. His eyes glow like a dog's eyes, like a fiery hellhound's eyes, I would say. Then the light faded, and he was only a hulking darkness. That's pretty great right there. Lightbringer is a hulking darkness. Sandor was a quick-moving shadow atop the tower earlier, and in this scene, his hand comes from the dark as well. I mentioned that earlier, Sandor had an iron grip, so let's consider all the descriptions of his hands. They're covered in blood, they're like iron, and they reach out of the shadow. Blood and night and steel, the familiar motif. Sandor's stained white cloak might refer to the idea of Lightbringer the sword being white-hot and the comet being white and blue before the forging in the heart of the second moon, and to the idea of dawn representing an undefiled Lightbringer sword. In any case, it effectively communicates the idea of Lightbringer being soiled and stained and defiled. The threat to kill the Moon Maiden goes along with the idea of her screaming, just as Nissanissa's cry of anguish and ecstasy left a crack across the face of the moon. There are also some Greenseer ideas here that I'm not ready to dive into yet, but take note of the swirling lance of jade light that is spit up at the stars. This could be a reference to the idea of Greenseers calling down the hammer of the waters. Renly's crown is made of gold and has a jade stag on it, which are the colors of Highgarden, and therefore evoke the idea of Garth the Green, who may have had antlers on his head like a stag, an image which is recreated whenever one of the Baratheons dons their antlered helm. There's just a bit more to quote from this scene, and here it is. The hound laughed. <laughs> I only know who's lost. Me. He is drunker than I've seen him. He was sleeping in my bed. What does he want here? What have you lost? All. The burnt half of his face was a mask of dried blood. Bloody dwarf. I should have killed him years ago. He's dead, they say. Dead? No. Bugger that. I don't want him dead. He cast the empty flagon aside. I want him burned. If the gods are good, they'll burn him. But I won't be here to see. I'm going. Azor High Reborn is the wanderer from far places, or the Red Wanderer. 
Sandor, accordingly, is lost, and has lost all. I think this is consistent with the idea that being a Zor High Reborn is not necessarily a great deal of fun, just as John discovered in his Azor High dream where he feels abandoned and alone. The highlight of this part is that Sandor was sleeping in the bed of the Moon Maiden. This is a direct parallel to the idea of Jon Snow emerging from Lyanna's bed of blood. The bed was even specifically made into a burning moon symbol when Sansa bled upon the bed, making it a bloody bed, and then burned it. And again, all of this takes place at the top of a tower. The hound's face is a mask of dried black blood, which sounds a lot like Beric's face, which was called a death mask, or like Quaithe's red lacquer mask. Tyrion, one of the likely heads of the dragon, gets a shout-out here as a bloody dwarf that Sandor wants to see burn. Fire and blood, the recipe for a dragon. Sansa thinks he's dead, then Sandor says no, implying resurrection or an undead state. Tyrion has a symbolically rich dream of being dead after he's knocked unconscious in this battle, but we don't really have time for that here. If Tyrion is in fact half Targaryen, and that's a theory I tend to believe in, then he's part lion and part dragon, the perfect solar symbol. His green and black eyes might be referring to the same motif that Sandor's momentary green and black appearance we saw a moment ago refers to. When Renly was killed in the tent by Stannis' shadow sword, the sword was described as black on green. The Targaryen Civil War was, of course, the blacks versus the greens. I think I know what all this means, but I'll have to save it for another time. I'd like to thank my fellow blogger Sweet Sunray of the Mythological Weave of Ice and Fire blog for the tip-off about this earlier part of Sansa's Moonblood chapter atop the tower. She caught this and brought it to my attention just as I was recording, and I barely squeezed it in. Sweet Sunray has some really fabulous essays on the Chthonic underworld realms in A Song of Ice and Fire, as well as a study of Lyanna as Persephone, who is an abducted moon maiden, and I highly recommend those. Check out her blog, and the link is on my website, or you can just look up Mythological Weave of Ice and Fire. There's another appearance of the moon as a flower motif at the birthing of the Shadow Baby in A Clash of Kings. Melisandre represents the destroyed second moon, the mother of Lightbringer, as we've seen before. She's been impregnated by Stannis, who plays the role of Azor High, of course, and she's going to give birth to the Shadow Baby, which represents Lightbringer. Notice that it's actually the moon which gives light temporarily as it explodes, and Lightbringer, which is made of darkness. There was no answer but a soft rustling, and then a light bloomed amidst the darkness. Davos raised a hand to shield his eyes, and his breath caught in his throat. Melisandre had thrown back her cowl and shrugged out of the smothering robe. Beneath she was naked and huge with child. Swollen breasts hung heavy against her chest, and her belly bulged as if near to bursting. "'Gods preserve us,' he whispered, and heard her answering laugh, deep and throaty. Her eyes were hot coals, and the sweat that dappled her skin seemed to glow with a light of its own. Melisandre shone. Panting, she squatted and spread her legs. Blood ran down her thighs, black as ink. We looked at the Lightbringer symbolism here last time. The agony and ecstasy phrase, which matches Nissa Nissa's cry of anguish and ecstasy. The light in the darkness motif the fire transformation with burning blood, etc. The word I'm focusing on here is bloomed. This is the moon's light blooming like a flower. Not Lightbringer, Lightbringer's mother. The moon maiden, in the moment that she gives birth to Lightbringer, shines. Attention is drawn to it. They're in a dark cave, and her skin is literally shining. She's pregnant near to bursting. She couldn't possibly eat another mint, even if it is wafer-thin. 
That's all quite vivid. A moon bursting open, creating momentary light, giving birth to black shadow children. That moon was a bright flower before she died, before she drank too much of the sunlight. As Salador San says to Davos in A Clash of Kings, Too much light can hurt the eyes, my friend, and fire burns. Notice that Lightbringer the Black Shadow looks just like his father, Azor High Reborn as played by Stannis Baratheon. He even has a crown of shadow and towers above the boat. There's our shadow tower motif again. But while his father is a living person and a king, the son is a black shadow version of the father. That's the family portrait here. The son dies and is reborn as a black shadow son, a knight's son. That's our Bloodstone Emperor, King of the Nightlands. The Ghost of High Heart, who sees everything and everyone in terms of symbols and sigils, describes Stannis's shadow baby assassin thusly in A Storm of Swords. I dreamt I saw a shadow with a burning heart, butchering a golden stag eye. As we can see, the burning heart and the black shadow are core elements of Azor High Reborn. The fiery heart of the Moon Maiden becomes the Black Shadow Meteors, which are themselves fiery hearts that bring darkness and shadow. We'll get into Renly's symbolism on a different occasion, but I will point out that the slaughtering of the Golden Stag describes the death of the Golden Sun. Section 11 The Black Iron Rose of Spreading Darkness We'll wrap up this podcast with one last, truly epic Flower of Darkness quote. This scene takes place in a Game of Thrones at the Battle of the Red Fork, better known as the fight where Tyrion fought with the Mountain Clans in his father's army. Tywin, as usual, plays the role of the son. Tywin Lannister's battle armor put his son Jaime's gilded suit to shame. His great cloak was sewn from countless layers of cloth of gold, so heavy that it barely stirred even when he charged so large that its drape covered most of his stallion's hindquarters when he took the saddle. No ordinary clasp would suffice for such a weight, so the great cloak was held in place by a matched pair of miniature lionesses crouching on his shoulders, as if poised to spring. Their mate, a male with a magnificent mane, reclined atop Lord Tywin's great helm, one paw raking the air as he roared. His rondels were golden sunbursts, all his fastenings were gilded, and the red steel was burnished to such a high sheen that it shone like fire in the light of the rising sun. The solar lion imagery is kind of hitting you over the head here, I'm sure you noticed that. But check out the really cool clue about the idea of there being two moons. The solar lion on the great helm has two lionesses. He is called their mate. One son, two wives just like Aegon and Rhaegar and a few others I haven't mentioned yet. As the battle is about to begin, it starts to sound a little bit like the War for the Dawn. Pale crimson fingers fanned out to the east as the first rays of the sun broke over the horizon. The western sky was a deep purple speckled with stars. Tyrion wondered whether this was the last sunrise he would ever see. A war horn sounded in the far distance, a deep mournful note that chilled the soul. In this corner, we have a deep purple night speckled with stars. And in this corner, we have the pale crimson fingers of dawn. Gentlemen, I want a good clean fight. At the sound of my horn. I kid, but of course the speckled with stars phrase calls out to Lord Beric's cloak, described in exactly the same terms, and to the Bloodstone Emperor's starry wisdom. 
That's on the opposite side of dawn, opposing dawn, if you will. Right after this, the rising sun creates an illusion with the dew on the grasses, which seems to mirror the sky, and we'll pick up the text here. The clansmen climbed onto their scrawny mountain horses, shouting curses and rude jokes. Several appeared to be drunk. The rising sun was burning off the drifting tendrils of fog as Tyrion led them off. What grass the horses had left was heavy with dew, as if some passing god had scattered a bag of diamonds over the earth. The mountain men fell in behind him, each clan arrayed behind its own leaders. In the dawn light, the army of Lord Tywin Lannister unfolded like an iron rose, thorns gleaming. We'll start with the divinely scattered diamonds, which evoke the meteor shower that came from the moon goddess, and this image is mirrored by the deep purple sky speckled with stars. It also brings to mind the black stones of Moat Kaelin, scattered like some god's abandoned toys. God sure throws a lot of stuff out of heaven, doesn't he? This illusion of diamonds scattered by a god is created by sunlight on wet blades of grass, connecting the fallen stars with shining blades. There's even a very clever sun-drinking idea here, spread across the end of one sentence and the beginning of the next. One sentence ends by talking about the mountain men from the mountains of the moon, several of whom appeared to be drunk. The next sentence begins with, The rising sun. In other words, the mountain men appeared to drink the rising sun. I've seen George do this kind of thing before, and in this case, I think it's intentional because a moon-associated thing is the exact right thing to be described as sun-drinking, and because we are in the middle of an astronomy metaphor. There's another one of these in the same paragraph. After the, like diamonds over the earth, sentence, the next sentence begins with, the mountain men fell in behind. This leaves us with the mountain men as another description of the meteors, falling mountains which drink the rising sun. It may seem like a stretch, but don't forget the names of those clans. Moon Brothers. Burned Men, led by the Red Hand. Stone Crows. That's a really good one. And another nod to the crows and ravens as meteors idea. This is a good example of how George likes to use things like house sigils or clan names in complement with the action to create a larger metaphor. And then the payoff quote, and I'll repeat it. In the dawn light, the army of Lord Tywin Lannister unfolded like an iron rose, thorns gleaming. Solar King Tywin's army is his weapon, and it unfolds like a black iron rose. A black iron weapon wielded by the sun symbolizes the black steel of Lightbringer and the black meteors from which it was made, according to my theory, of course. It's also a home run reference to two important bloodstone concepts tied to the moon, the flower which drinks the sun's light, and the stone which darkens the image of the sun, and this coming after the clever mountain men drinking the sun reference. The idea that the sun's black weapon is both a black flower and a thing made of black iron seems like purely poetic language without the bloodstone ideas in mind, but it makes perfect sense with them. The moon was a sun-drinking flower that gave us black iron, sun-drinking meteors to make swords out of. Inside that iron flower, we find burned men and burned hands stone crows, and sun-drinking moon brothers. Even without the heliotropium flower ideas, roses can make an excellent comet symbol in their own right, as they have a round head and a long tail. And don't forget those sharp thorns. Thematically speaking, the thorns that prick and the connotations of love found in the rose are a good fit for expressing the procreation, death, double meaning of Lightbringer. We saw roses used as the moonflower of choice at the Tower of Joy, with Leanna's storm of blue roses. Those roses later 
spilled from her palm dead and black, symbolizing death in general and the darkening of the moon's blood and stone to black in particular. The sun-turning heliotrope flower of the Greek Clytie myth was purple, but our moon was transformed and burned by Lightbringer the Comet to produce those black, sun-drinking bloodstone meteors, so it should now be represented by a black, sun-drinking flower. Here we get the black iron rose, unfolding like a spreading darkness, a twin to Leanna's dead black roses. Tywin is no ordinary solar lion in this scene. He has become the Lion of Night, the Night Sun, wielder of Dark Lightbringer, if you know what I'm saying, and I know you do. Just as Drogo lets loose an oily black river of darkness, and Jon his rivers of black ice, Tywin has his black iron rose of spreading darkness. These are the waves of night in the Waves of Night and Blood motif, and of course, they come from Lightbringer. By way of teasing the upcoming episode on Ironborn mythology, I'll leave you with this. And when battle was joined upon the shores, mighty kings and famous warriors fell before the reavers, like wheat before a scythe, in such numbers that the men of the Greenlands told each other that the Ironborn were demons risen from some watery hell, protected by fell sorceries, and possessed of foul black weapons that drank the very souls of those they slew. Lightbringer drank Nissa Nissa's soul. So what are these iron demons from hell doing with black swords that drink souls? Is there a connection? What does it all mean? Wow, we did it! All the mythical associations of Bloodstone and Heliotrope, which I believe that George R.R. Martin is making use of in his own mythology, and it only took five hours of podcasting to do it. I wish you guys knew how hard it is to narrow down the choice of quotes to use. The struggle is never to find enough examples of the archetypal patterns or motifs, but rather to choose the best ones to use as examples. Quite honestly, these Lightbringer metaphors are in almost every chapter. You'll start finding them on your own as you do rereads, now that you have all these symbols and motifs in your mind, I promise you. There's a lot of text to pour over, and I haven't found them all by any stretch. People frequently message me with astronomy metaphors they have discovered, and you'll hear me mention them for hat tips from time to time. Like I said, it's kind of a treasure hunt, and that's only to find them, and to say nothing of deciphering their specific meaning. All I can do is keep podcasting, take my best shot, and wait for the winds of winter to come out. As for this podcast itself, I'm going to begin branching out with both subject and format. I'm going to continue to do the Big Bloodstone Compendium episodes, continuing the series that we've been doing so far, but I'm also going to do some smaller, more contained episodes which focus on one specific scene or chapter, kind of like I did at the end of the first podcast with Danny's alchemical wedding scene, Visions in her Wake the Dragon Dream, and the House of the Undying chapter. Other great scenes and chapters I want to dissect are Arya's chapters under the Red Keep with the Dragon Skulls, Asha Greyjoy's Wayward Bride chapter where they fight the mountain clans in the woods, Davos smuggling Edric Storm off of Dragonstone, Jon Snow's trip to the Weirwood Grove of Nine when they found the starving wildlings, Jamie's trip to Raventree Hall, and both Old Town chapters in A Feast for Crows, and many more. One of the first ones I'll be doing will be the Mountain vs. the Red Viper trial-by-combat scene, which I referred to in this podcast a couple of times. It was originally a part of this one, but had to be cut because of length. 
It'll be a bit of a follow-up of a lot of the Bloodstone ideas, so look out for that one soon. I'm also going to start to do some character-based episodes, where we'll break down all of the symbolism of a specific character and try to figure out what the hell it means for that person. And as I mentioned a bit earlier, I'm also going to be getting into the very important topics of Green Seers and the Others, and I believe that I'm going to be able to tear away the veil of secrecy around the Green Men and the Isle of Faces. I'm really looking forward to that one in particular, because I think we're going to see the Isle of Faces in the next book and get some answers, so I'll be sure to get that one out as soon as possible. I'm also very excited to officially announce that I'll be doing a joint episode with Aziz and Ashea from the History of Westeros podcast. That will appear as a podcast in your Mythical Astronomy feed just like normal, but you'll also be able to see it live in video form on the History of Westeros YouTube channel. The topic is a very important one, the Great Empire of the Dawn and the Dawn Age Dragonlords. I've referred to my Fingerprints of the Dawn essay a few times, and this joint podcast will be the official podcast version of this information. It complements all the Bloodstone Emperor Azora High stuff we've been covering because it traces out the hard evidence of contact between the Far East and Westeros in the Dawn Age. In addition to the Great Empire of the Dawn and the Ashai material, we're basically going to cover all the evidence of people other than First Men in Dawn Age Westeros. Strange folktales, anachronistic buildings, evidence of dragons, etc. So it should be a lot of fun. The History of Westeros folks will have some interesting things to say, to be sure, and we'll have plenty of freeform discussion, which will be a nice change-up from my regular format. I also did a guest appearance on History of Westeros's House Stain Part 2 podcast, which was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me, guys. And you can find that by looking up History of Westeros on YouTube. That's also where you'll find all of the History of Westeros past episodes. So if you still have free time to kill, there you go. Thanks to everyone who voted for my ideas about the Long Night and the Great Empire of the Dawn in the recent A Song of Ice and Fire fandom poll conducted by Brendan Beefish of The Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire. It's really tremendous to see the moon destruction theory getting around a bit. One of the main reasons I'm doing this, besides the pure enjoyment of it, is to get the word out about what George is doing with his mythology, so that everyone else can enjoy it as much as we are here. So thanks again, and thanks to everyone who has listened and shared my page and podcast. I really, really appreciate it. So long, everyone. 